This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. We are hanging out today with Damian Eccles of the West Memphis Three. You may have seen the story in the documentary series Paradise Lost. I think the simplest way that I can describe this is the state tried to kill a person, basically to placate angry individuals. I'm very much against the death penalty. And so, you know, a, a story about the government wanting to kill someone and imprison several, uh, uh, a couple others because it made their jobs easier is, uh, it's a crazy story and, it, and it's captivated people for, for decades. So Damien, thanks for, for hanging out with us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this, this will be, I think this will be fascinating. We also have Cassandra Fairbanks because admittedly, this is a subject I am, uh, you know, I can talk about politics, philosophy, and my views on the case, but Cassandra seems to know everything, you know, probably the second most, maybe next to you, Damien, about what actually happened. I, would, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> I'm exaggerating. I'm being hyperbolic. But. I, you know, I followed for years because I was, you know, a little goth kid who was, you know, when it came out, I was like 12 years old and I watched it and I was like, how could this be? And I think I've read almost everything I could find since then. Um, and I'm, I'm old now, so this is, it's been a while. So I'm very happy that you're here and you're free and that we're speaking to you. Thank you. I've, I've actually seen you a few times online, like defending us. And that was what made yeah. me say, like, whenever you guys asked it, I want to come on. I was like, yeah, because I honestly, I don't enjoy like, you know, talking about this stuff. Like it, it's in a lot of ways, it's, it's incredibly traumatic. So it just helps knowing you're going into a situation with somebody that actually knows the details of things and, and that has shown support through the years. So yeah. I appreciate that. I think we'll have a mix of people who are deeply invested and know the story going back decades and some people who are rather new to it. So, you know, how do you, how would you guys propose starting off what, what this, what this story is? I mean, you were on death row, you were accused falsely of taking the lives of, I think it was three children. Yes. Yes. I was, a, in I was arrested in uh, 1993. I ended up spending 18 years and 76 days on death row. Uh, and I was accused of killing three eight-year-old children as part of a human sacrifice in West Memphis, Arkansas. Wow, eighteen years, man. Yeah, that's that's insane. How did I mean? Where do we begin? How does how does something like this happen? How did how did it come to be? It was it was you and two of your friends, I believe, correct? Exactly. Yeah. One one of the guys was really mentally challenged. They said he had an IQ that hovered somewhere around the, like the range of seventy to seventy two. Uh, so he was. I mean, if you look into a lot of these like false conviction cases, one of the things you find is that a lot of them involve false confessions. If you take someone with a, a really low IQ and put an incredible amount of pressure on them, they're really susceptible to finally just saying, "Okay, I'll admit to whatever you want me to say. Just stop what you're doing." And that was pretty much what happened in this case. Uh, they they picked up a mentally handicapped guy. I think he was 17 at the time. Uh, and did what amounted mm -hmm. to psychological torture for, for many hours. I can't even remember how many hours it was now. It was, you know, this was like 30 years ago. Wow. Uh, but he finally confessed to the crime and implicated me and someone else. So all three of us. I ended up getting, I was sentenced to death three times. Uh, one of the other guys was sentenced to life without parole, 
and the mentally handicapped guy was sentenced to uh, life plus 40 years. How did you, so well, uh, I want to jump to the end just so people can understand how you end up here out of jail and then we'll go back and start going through the story. But uh, how did how did you end up not on death row? I mean, if they convict, if they sentence you to death three times, how do you end up sitting here? So what happened was I was arrested in 93, convicted in 94. I got out in 2011. And a huge part of what made that possible is uh, the way DNA testing has progressed over time. You know, back when we were arrested in 1993, they could not do some of the testing that they can do. Well, they can even do more advanced stuff now, which is what we're fighting for in court. We're trying to get even more DNA testing done. But in 2011, they had finally progressed enough where they were able to test things in such small amounts, uh, small amounts that they couldn't necessarily get results from in 93. So they test the DNA found at the crime scene and it ma it ended up not only ma not matching me or the other two guys, but it ended up being a match for uh, one of the victim's stepfathers and the guy who was providing the stepfather with an alibi. So it ended up, the DNA ended up matching them. We go through this thing with the state, you know, you know, this this is why I say I, I always say the state tried to murder me is because they knew what they were doing. They knew even after they did the DNA testing and found that it didn't match us. I sat on death row for another two years while they fought to still kill me. They were saying this doesn't matter. You got a fair trial. That's all that matters. And Jeez. the state still kept trying to push this through even after the DNA testing. And I forgot where I was going with that. I had a point. But that's one of the other things also is. Um, I did spend a lot of time in solitary confinement, over, like over a decade, and it, it caused a lot of uh, brain trauma that we didn't even know I had until I got out. So, you know, I lost a lot of stuff like facial recognition and voice recognition. It messed up my eyesight really bad. But sometimes I forget what I'm talking about right in the middle of a sentence. Also. Ten years. They say, uh, doesn't the UN consider anything more than two weeks of solitary confinement torture? I wouldn't doubt it. Uh, I, had I, think, a, I think it might be less than that. I think that, yeah, maybe. But I, I feel like I read something like two weeks in the Julian Assange case they were arguing. Wow. Um, so what ends up happening is I guess uh, you guys uh, took an Alfred plea? That's exactly what, Yeah, that's where I was going with that. Yeah, so in 2011, uh, due to the DNA testing, the state still would not give up. So my attorneys got together with the state and they all agreed on a compromise. This compromise was something called an Alfred plea. I had never heard of this before, uh, knew nothing about it whatsoever, but what it comes down to is you get to still legally maintain your innocence while accepting a guilty plea. And the whole point of it is so that the state cannot be held responsible for what they've done. That was the only wow. reason that they didn't kill me was because so many people in the outside world were paying attention to the case and they wanted that to go away. So this uh, this, this mentally handicapped guy you mentioned, was he your friend? I knew who he was, but, you know, he wasn't like a close friend or yeah. anything. You know, there was like no intellectual bonding or like we shared anything in common. But, you know, I grew up in pretty much absolute poverty. And so did he. So when you're living at the bottom of the barrel in a small place, you pretty much know who everybody is. Yeah. So I and was he, familiar When he was him. interrogated, he implicated you and, yes. and your, the other guy was your friend as well, right? Exactly. Yeah. The other guy I was really good friends with. We lived in the same trailer park together. You know, people make jokes about that, like trailer trash, white trash, whatever. But honestly, by the time we moved into a trailer park to us, it felt like we were moving up in the world. Oh, wow. So he ends up implicating the, uh, this, this mentally handicapped guy implicates the both of you. 
And then what, what was the name of your friend? Is it uh, uh, Jason Baldwin? Jason, I, I, I didn't know if I want to like bring up other names or whatever, but I saw uh, I was watching the documentaries, uh, a documentary series. I think it was like IDF or something or whatever the channel ID. I think the channel was and they played a clip where he said he didn't want to take the Alfred plea. Yes. He didn't want to let the state say that he was guilty, but he said they're trying to kill Damien. So yeah. I, I have to do this. Yeah. And I'm like. I, I, it's, it's no surprise to me this story's captivated so many people because it's, it's shocking how even, even, even if I, I, I just, the amount of, of fault error in, in the story, the, the amount of evidence that's come out, the story itself, like almost, I, I guess what, almost immediately or, or very quickly after the, the, the trial, people were like, hey, wait a minute, something's wrong with this. This mm -hmm. doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. And um, how, how did it get this far? that the state was just hell-bent on killing a person. It, it, feel, it feels like, as this, I was saying this before the show, I was like, I want to make sure I get this right. It sounds like you get a bunch of really angry people, they hear this story, I mean, it's a horrible story, you know, these, these three kids getting murdered, and they say, do something, but they don't care what, and the state just says, give them whatever. Yes. And so they're like, if we, if we it's, it's almost like the state would be more content with killing an innocent man as long as it makes them look like they did something. That, and it also makes the community feel like they have a sense of closure. Like someone was arrested, something was done. So it's like the, I mean, there really is in situations like that, like a kind of psychic pressure. Like when, whenever these crimes happened in West Memphis, you could feel it was almost like it changed the air. Like you could, it was, it was all everyone was thinking about. It was all everyone was talking about. Like it changed that community to its foundation in a, in a not pleasant way. And all people want is for life to go back to normal, yeah. to, to get this pressure out of the air. And we were the scapegoats. We sacrificed these kids. Like I said, we were white wow. trash. Nobody's ever going to miss these guys. They were never going to amount to anything anyway. We kill them, chalk this up to case closed, and everybody gets to go on with life as usual. Do you think they knew who actually committed the crime? I, I do. I, do. I didn't at first. You know, keep in mind, I was only 18 years old whenever all this stuff ha happened. So... You know, teenagers aren't exactly the smartest people in the world. Um, and, and back then, like the attorneys that I had, they told me that it was someone who's now dead. It was another one of the stepfathers of, of one of the victims. They told me this is the guy that we believe did it. So I, I took that at face value. I thought, okay, they know. They're older than me. They're lawyers, whatever, so they must know what they're talking about. So in the beginning, I thought it was another guy. Um. You know, it's it's one of those things. This is really uh, very difficult to to talk about in a lot of ways. But I I think it was someone who was, and I don't want to say too much yet. But this is one of the reasons we're pushing so hard for this DNA testing. Is I think it was someone connected to the police department. Uh, that would know, make sense. Do you have like? You don't have to say who, but do you have an idea of the person, or just that it's somebody connected? I I do. I have an, an idea of the person. I mean, keep in mind, this is, you know, this is, the, this story in a lot of ways is, there's so much more to it and it's so much deeper than, than people think. Um, you know, for example, everybody knows about the guy, Jerry Driver, that, you know, he was this juvenile cop that had harassed me for years. But he was part of like a, a very small juvenile task force that was made up of three people. These three guys used to come through our neighborhood. You know, like I said, once again, poor white trash. Nobody cares about these kids. Uh, they used to come through our neighborhood and, um, 
you know, I don't know like what all you can say on here, like what like ratings route wise or whatever, but they would basically come through the neighborhood, pick up young boys and say, either you give me a blowjob or you're going to jail. There were three of these guys. Two of they them were, were they were cops yeah. that were Using yeah. the power of the police department to rape young boys. Yes. Wow. Two of them are now dead. One of them was forced to resign after he was caught molesting a boy in a public bathroom. <laughs> I'm sorry for laughing, but like, it sounds like that should be the lead in the investigation in your case right there. Pe someone who's targeting children. And the link, like the DNA, um, the DNA that was found whenever we did the testing, it matched... Uh, one of the stepfathers who we also now know was an informant for the police department who was working with them on a lot of drug cases. I've actually spoke to him um, several years ago. I, I was on a tier and I was just like, you know, this guy did it. What the hell? And so I went on Facebook and I found him and I was like, why have you never given the police department dental imprints? And then I just started pounding him. And I was like, I was really aggressive, admittedly, like really aggressive. And he was like, you know, please read my book. I didn't do it. They had the right people. And he was like very adamant. And so I was like, you know what? I'm not going to accuse this guy anymore until I read his book. So I read his book. And I was like, you know, there's a huge part of me that still thinks, you know, there's so much evidence against him. But at the same time, I didn't want to do to him what everybody had done to you. Exactly. So I was, it was a really weird situation because he was so nice and you could tell that it has affected him for so long. Like it ruined his life too. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I mean, if he didn't do it, you know, that sucks. And so I kind of laid off and um, he's been very friendly to me since. He comments on my Facebook and all kinds of stuff. But uh, it was weird because I, I originally thought it was John. Yep. And so who, did who, I. Who is John? One of the fathers. Stepfathers? Step John Mark Byers. Yeah. I, is, is, is the, the, in this documentary series I watched, there's a guy, one of the parents of the children, is that who he accuses? He says, these young boys didn't do this. It was, and then he... Yeah, so the guy who accuses the other guy at first, he's the one that everyone thought did it. Like, he's the one my attorneys told me did it. And, oh, and wow. So I go on TV, and this is why I'm really hesitant to, like, say names or accuse people now, is because back then I believed 100% that this guy did it, and I went on TV and accused him on TV. Turns out, like, after they do the DNA testing and everything, it's not him either. So, you know, I ended up, we, we ended up mending fences, and, and we started, like, going out to dinner. He ended up, wow. like, going on, like, a promotional tour to talk about the case with us, try to get, you know, more investigation done, all of that. But that's one of the reasons that I'm so hesitant to, like, point the finger at, you know, yeah. I don't want to destroy someone's life if they weren't responsible. Right, and there's so many different people too, because you know, there's the person who is at Bojangles, and then there's, you know. Well, so, so what's that What's that about? What's the Bojangles thing? Wait, wait. So just to, to, before we get into this, before we get into Bojangles, the, 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 the crime is three young children were found, not just dead, but I, I believe they were exsanguinated, that their blood had been removed from their bodies. 
That's what that was one of the things that they never could figure out just because when they found the bodies, they were found in like running water. So they don't know if like the blood washed away or like what the hell happened. You know, even it, it was hard to even tell because they were found in a wooded area. So it was hard to even tell like what were actually wounds that were put there by the person who did the killings versus like animal predation oh, wow. because they were found in a wooded area, bit by turtles, stuff like that. They, so, they also didn't do luminol testing for, what was it, six hours after they found the bodies. So they were out in the running water and the elements for six hours before they even, like, checked to see if there's blood anywhere. Right. Oh, wow. Um, well, so just I, I brought that up because you mentioned Bojangles. And uh, you explain what that was about. Um, do you want to explain? Or so so um, a lot of this stuff, keep in mind, this was 30 years ago for me. But from, from what I remember, the Bojangles thing was... Uh, someone that ran, you know, I don't know if they have these everywhere or not, these Bojangles, um, change, chicken right? and biscuit yeah. places, whatever. So the manager of one of these places calls the police and he says, there's a guy in the bathroom covered in blood and he's like getting blood all over the stall everywhere. The police come out. The first one does not even go inside. She just went through the drive-in window and ordered chicken and biscuits. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Whenever the others show up, they take the blood, blood samples like off of the walls and everything. He left a pair of sunglasses there that had blood on them. He smeared blood all over the walls of the stall. They took scrapings, took the blood samples, and lost them. They were never sent off to be tested. I don't believe they lost them. And I don't either. So it was in a separate district so it wasn't the same police district but it was like five minutes away from where yeah. the boys were right and so they all knew that this was happening and for some reason a guy covered in blood did not raise enough red flags for them to like urgently like haul ass over there and question this guy and this it sounds like a lot of blood it doesn't sound like you know you could get a nosebleed or a cut and put some blood somewhere but this sounds like this guy was really smearing a yeah, lot the witnesses said that he was like covered in blood but part of it, one of the reasons for that, like that, that they didn't care about that stuff, that they didn't pursue it, like they said in court that they didn't consider me a suspect for, I can't remember exactly how long it was, but it was a period of like weeks after the murders. They said, you know, we started doing this big investigation and our investigation slowly pointed us towards him, all this sort of stuff. The, the person that I believe that was involved with this, that is connected to the police department, uh, he said, and he admitted this out of his own mouth, he said the minute that they pulled the bodies out of the, the creek where they were found, he said the first thing he said was Damien Eccles finally did it. He went and hurt someone. Whoa. My name was the first thing out of his mouth. He admitted that. I was the person that they zoomed in on from, from minute one. I'm going to go full conspiracy theorist on this. Because this sounds just... Welcome to everybody for the last I know, I know, right? few decades. And that's probably why so many people are like, this story. So you have a guy walk into a fast food restaurant covered in blood. And that's, that's, that's relatively close to the area where the kids are found. But keep in mind, there's a lot of other people who also have very suspicious things. I mean, Terry Hobbs's hair was in the shoelace. and. Right. And, you know, um, well, buyers was, got was, his teeth removed. <laughs> like, there was, right. everybody <laughs> did. There were a lot of people who looked suspicious. Mm -hmm. But the, the, the hair and the shoelace, that was one of the stepfathers, right? Right. right. I mean, your hair is going to be all over the place. That's, that's a tough one. Right. But, but it know, wasn't on it his, wasn't his son. It wasn't, yeah, it was another oh, one of the victims. Okay, all right. Now, now we're getting hair. weird. I mean, but the kid 
they probably did play together. There is a plausible explanation for that. Like transference. Yeah. yeah. I do this analogy about, you know, placing bets all the time. If you're at a roulette table, where do you put your money if you think you're going to win? And if someone asked me to put my money down on a bet, it's someone, as you stated, someone probably close with the police in some way said, cover this up. We need a scapegoat. And all these pieces sort of come together. And I feel like Cassandra, you probably felt this way for a long time. They target a mentally handicapped individual to get him to confess, to target the people they're going to use as a scapegoat to cover up something they knew more about. A guy shows up covered in blood, and then all of a sudden they lose the samples. No, it sounds like someone made a phone call. Keep in mind also, at the time that we were arrested, at the time these murders happened, the entire police department was under investigation by the FBI. Yeah. So there was a lot of really shady stuff going on Man. around that area. And didn't they claim that they lost the evidence um, in your case also, like later, and then it turned out that they hadn't lost it at all? Yeah. So what we're trying to do right now, like the DNA testing that we want to do, it's come far enough where, you know, like I said, they can do things that they couldn't even do in 2011. One of the things they can do now is they still have the ligatures that they removed from the children, the shoestrings. Whenever they removed them, they didn't untie them. They just cut them so that the knots are preserved. They could do DNA testing. Now, what we're asking them to do is untie those knots and DNA test the inside of those knots, and you would find the skin cells of whoever tied those knots. Wow. They can do that now. That's what we're asking them to do. And I forgot the question. What were we just talking about? Um, I, <laughs> I can't remember. That was too fascinating. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I just got all into they it. Can, they can untie a shoelace and get skin cells from the inside of the it's shoelace. Yes. testing. Yes. Oh. And they can also tell you, like, if it's more than one person's DNA, they have the technology now where they can separate that and show you, okay, it was this person and this person. It's a combination of two people's DNA. And there's now, also a good chance that whoever did it had that in their mouth at some point, because if you're trying to hold somebody down and you're trying to tie, you know, there's probably, you know, I bite things all the time when I'm like tying it or opening a package or whatever. And they've gotten tons of DNA from like duct tape and things like that because people just, you know, bite it to rip mm -hmm. it off and don't think are, about it. Are, are there, I, I assume there are, but are there still people who think you did it? Oh, I'm sure there are. I mean, I, I've seen you would, you know, like you said a minute ago, going full conspiracy theory. I saw a video one time on YouTube and I can't remember who this guy was or, or the name or anything else, but somebody put up a video proving that I was a reptilian. They, they <laughs> I've do got the, those too, though. They so. do the thing yeah. where they slow it down frame by frame, and they're like, you know, in this frame, you see for a split second, he loses control of his human form, <laughs> and his teeth get jagged and all this kind of he stuff. He loses control. <laughs> so there are people who say that, like, the reason that I was freed was because I was connected to this, you know, Illuminati reptile conspiracy or whatever and they were looking out for their own and I was released because of that. But why would you be arrested in the first place if if I was if the reptilians are controlling everything? So you're talking sense now. <laughs> <laughs> well then here's talking sense. Why would someone who is guilty be consistently pursuing more investigation, more DNA testing? That to me, I mean, pr proof is proof and evidence is evidence, but for me, you know, you're you're sitting here saying please keep investigating, please do more cuz I'm innocent. And that says a lot. The state could just do it. We have the opportunity right now. Like they could, it, to do this testing would only take something like three days. 
We have the ability right now, if they were to do this testing today, within three days, we could show definitively who committed these murders. This could be put to rest once and for all, but the state is doing everything they can to prevent that from happening. We've even told them, you don't have to pay for it. We will pay for it. We'll, we'll raise the money however we have to raise the money to pay for this I'll testing ourselves and still they will not do it. I have um, one question. I mean, I, I kind of know the answer to this, but I'm assuming that other people might not. Um, is is there anyone from the families who are still alive that still think you did it other than Terry? There there are. There's uh, one, of, one of the children's family members. Um, I think they're probably still in West Memphis. I haven't heard from them in years and years. So they kind of went underground. The reason why they're they're claiming that they won't do the DNA testing is that you don't have jurisdiction because you're no longer in prison, right? Right. So even the family members who think that you did it, uh, but especially the ones who don't, because I know a lot of them don't now, um, couldn't they request the DNA be tested? They could, but the state still wouldn't do it. You, know, it's, you would think that they would want to, even if even if you were guilty as all get out, you would think that they would want to just put the rumors to rest, just, you know, once and for all, figure it out. Uh, if not for you, then for the families and for the community there, because um, they, you know, they might still have a killer living among them. Almost <laughs> every single thing about this case defies common sense, logic, and reason. Sort of, except for the common sense that well, the state is implicated in this. Yes. That's, I mean, I often say uh, Occam's razor, in the absence of evidence, the solution that makes the least amount of assumptions tends to be correct. If you've got party A saying, do not investigate, stop, stop. And then you've got the accused being like, please, please investigate. This can exonerate me and it can prove I really did it. And then the other group says, nope, nope, nope. It's like, I'm kind of looking in your direction at who the guilty party might be. Yeah. I think it might implicate something with the state. As you mentioned, the police may be worse. What they're uh, used to doing, though, is they've kind of, through the years, sort of realized or seen that if we can just hold out long enough, something else will happen that will draw people's attention away, distract them, a new shiny object appears, and maybe this fades away and everybody forgets about it. So, is, oh. No, go ahead, go ahead. So, I know under the Alfred plea, they did that entirely so that you can't see them, right? Um, but if they did find the like the real killer and they had DNA and it was proven beyond a reasonable doubt that you did not do it and that they had the person who did, could you? Would it nullify the Alfred plea in that case? Would you be able to sue them? That's one of the things that nobody knows for sure. Yeah, just I tried because to find the answer. There has couldn't. never been a situation like this before. You yeah. know, this is a first-time, unique, unprecedented situation. So it's almost impossible to say what could happen. I mean, in in a just world, it would. You know, in, in a just world, it would, this situation would be rectified in a yeah. lot of ways. You know, somebody else would be sent to prison. The people who covered it up would be held accountable. We would be able to sue the state of Arkansas. You know, a lot of things would be fixed. But the, the fact of the matter is nobody really knows. They're sort of making yeah. it up as they go along. Who would be able to make the call to get the test done? Is it only in the hands of like the state Supreme Court now or could like the governor, is Sarah Sanders, is the I mean, governor it, now, could she step in? 
I don't know if she could or not, but I mean, she's the governor, so she could definitely, you know, look into it or mm-hmm. apply a little pressure or even because there's a bunch of ways that it, this could happen. Like, for example, the, the prosecutor, the attorney general, any of these people, the judge, any of these people have the ability to say at any point, do the DNA testing. All of them are trying to prevent it from being done. So she could theoretically, like, even ask the attorney general, why are you fighting this case? Right. And and that would put a little pressure. Because that's the only thing these people care about. Yeah. That's the only reason I'm, I'm, I even talk about this stuff is because the only thing they care about is a, sh- a spotlight being shined on them. Yep. If there's if there's no scrutiny, then they say, what's the point? Exactly. If uh, it's like the old cost benefit, ana- the cost risk analysis thing businesses do. You ever see Fight Club? Mm-hmm. When he's on the... When, uh, Edward Norton's character's on the plane and, the, and he's talking to the guy and he says, if the cost of the lawsuits are less than the cost of the recall, we won't recall. Yes. So they would rather the cars crash and people die because that would be cheaper than actually recalling. So the state's looking at it like that. Yep. How much, how much mo- what's our monetary damage? What's our political risk? Well, it's, it's easier for the state. You have to wonder this. Why is it easier for the state to try and kill an innocent man what what are the repercussions for the state that's worse than killing an innocent person? There must be something really dark deep in there, and it may, must be someone very powerful that they're scared, you know, of, of, of it coming out. That, w- and also keep in mind that a lot of these people built careers for themselves off of this case. You know, you had the judge went on to run for Senate and become a senator. The prosecutor runs for Arkansas Supreme Court. Like, you had a lot of people who used this as the foundation of showing, like, we're— whatever it is that the reason you should vote for us is because we handled this case. Yeah, and this was the height of satanic panic too. Yeah. So they were, you know, coming out looking like heroes mm-hmm. who, you know, stopped the satanic cult that was running rampant in It's like some teenager who drew some goofy pictures and they're Yep. Yeah, That's but, so great. But it, it was all over the TV back then. I mean, you had like all the talk shows, everybody, everybody was talking about the Satanic Panic, which I remember very vividly because I had just discovered, you know, the Misfits, Marilyn Manson, and I'm like 12. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh, great. There's Columbine and Satanic Panic and all this stuff. It was not a good time for me. There was <laughs> for there's a, a lot of kids. There's a, you ever hear of Magic the Gathering, the card game? Mm-hmm. They had a, a, one of the cards in the early sets, this is like 94, was called Unholy Strength. And it's a, the art is a man who's like head tilted up and behind him is a burning pentagram. And when they reissued the set, they had to remove the pentagram because I guess parents were complaining about the satanic imagery or, of it or whatever. Mm-hmm. So like this is you know, a few years later I, even and people are still very much, no, it's offensive. We can't show kids this evil imagery and you have to get it from the art and get it out of there. Yeah. Eddie Munson's character on Stranger Things was based out on yep. you, right? Yep. <laughs> wow. My daughter's yeah. obsessed with him. Yeah. So <laughs> I was telling her that. I was going to go meet the person that he was based on. She thought that was very cool. Have, have you ever seen the movie The Life of David Gale? I've heard the name, but it doesn't ring a bell. I don't, I don't know if, it, you know, you said you were on death row for 18 years. So I don't know if there's something, something you want to watch. But it's the movie, of, it's a Kevin Spacey film, which, you know, the context of that kind of changes now that Kevin Spacey has been accused of all these things. But in the film, he is a uh, philosophy professor who goes to a party one night and there's this uh, young, young woman who basically flunks out of the college and no longer is a student and they have sex. She stages it as a rape, then falsely accuses him and then flees and drops the charges. He loses his e- everything. And then that's the backstory, but the, 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 the story starts with him on death row. Mm. He's giving an interview. 
another teacher he had worked with was raped and murdered. And so I don't want to, I don't want to ruin the movie, but I guess I will because it's like a 20 year old movie. Basically what happens is he's an anti-death penalty activist, him and this woman. His life is destroyed by this false rape accusation. Then one day this woman is found with a bag over her head. Her hands are cuffed behind her back. She's got, you know, his fluids in her. The key to the handcuffs, they're in her stomach and she's dead from asphyxiation with the, you know, the bag taped to her neck. He gets accused of it. He gets sentenced to death. And then in the end, he gets put to death. And then after he dies, a video gets sent anonymously or, or no, a, a reporter finds a video of her committing suicide, of her sw- cuffing herself, swallowing, you know, swallowing the key. She tapes a thing around her neck and then she cuffs herself and lays down. And then he gets put to death falsely, mm. causing this panic and everything. I just think it's, it's a, I don't know. I, 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 I'm just reminded of, a, of that movie, I suppose, thinking about your case and you know, being on death row for so long, innocently. I guess there's no point to tell that story about the movie other than I, I think it's a really great movie. And I'm just wondering, uh, you know, what, what, what was going through your mind when they, they convict you? When, when you got convicted, they immediately say that they were seeking the death penalty? Oh, yeah. I, I, I believe they even said it before, before the trial. I mean, we knew, I mean, they were charging me with capital murder. And there's all, there are only two penalties in Arkansas for capital murder. Either you get life without parole or you get the death penalty. And I was the main one that they were gunning for. So we knew going into that, into that courtroom that they were going to try to give me the death penalty. When, um, so the jury deliberates. And I think it was a relatively short deliberation or was it? I can't remember. It wasn't very long. I can't remember exactly how long it was, but I know it was, it was like less than 24 hours. Yeah. Uh, what, what was going through your mind when, you know, they come back in and, you know, it's, it's weird. Like talking about that in, in, in a lot of ways is very, very difficult just because looking back on that time, it's almost like trying to remember somebody else's memories. Like I'm not that person anymore. Like so much time has passed and, and so many different experiences that it, it changes you. So what I remember from that time period is part of you knows that you're screwed, but part of you also keeps thinking, surely at any minute, somebody's going to fix this. You know, surely somebody's going to come to their senses at any time. Surely an adult is going to come into the room and put an end to this. So there's part of you that knows that you're screwed and part of you that still has this like clinging to hope that somehow, some way, this is going to turn out okay. And I think a lot of people keep doing that all the way up until the point that they're executed. Wow. One thing I, I hear a lot is that uh, in so many, so many stories that I've heard, you'll get people, uh, either, you know, uh, people who have watched maybe televised court, uh, uh, televised trials, or who were there, and they'll say, oh, his, his attitude was, was not of someone who was innocent. They, they, they know exactly how you're supposed to respond. And that's what they said about, there were people saying the same thing about me. Like, no, it's exactly yeah. that, you know, you didn't react the way an innocent person should have reacted. You know, I, I don't know, how, how do you feel? Or like, what do you think? I mean, it's, it's, 
it always reminds me in, in like a kind of roundabout way of that quote by Mike Tyson that everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> it's like it's easy to say what you would do or what someone should do or any of that when you're not the one in that situation. When you're not an 18-year-old, you know, teenager, barely more than a child yourself, going through the most incredibly traumatic event that you can possibly imagine outside of being murdered yourself. You know, it's easy for people to say what they would have done in that situation, but you you really do not know what you would have done in that situation until you're in it. You are in shock. You are in trauma. You're doing everything you can just to keep putting one foot in front of the other. And people deal with that in different ways. You know, one of the guys, like the, the, the mentally handicapped guy, the, the entire trial, he laid there with his head on the table pretty much the entire time. They said that, mean, that shows he was guilty yeah. because he behaved that way. I sat up, you know, I maintained eye contact with anybody, like I've got nothing to hide. You know, I'm an open book here. They said, well, that, he's arrogant. That proves yep. he's guilty. There is nothing that any one of us could have done in that situation that someone wouldn't have taken as saying, oh, you know, I'm reading their body language or whatever it is, and, and I think they're guilty. There's nothing that we could have done that someone wouldn't I mean, have said that. Jason looked like the most wholesome, like, small child ever. Like, he, you know, you all had such different personalities that, yeah, it just, it doesn't matter what you would have done. Exactly. It's, all of you are so different. and couldn't be more different and all of you are found guilty exactly you, you and think i think oh. oh, no, 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 no. um you know i did see there were a lot of people who thought that you you seemed really smug especially in the first one but it to me it seemed like you just didn't believe that you could actually be convicted for it I, I, it seemed to me like you were kind of making light of it because you were like this is ridiculous. Part like, of you, surely. Yes. That's how part of you feels. Like, that's what I mean about, like, you keep thinking, surely at any time somebody's going to step in and fix this. You keep, yeah. you know, there's part of you, like I said, you go back and forth. It's almost like you're on the seesaw or something where part of you, one day you get up and you're like, I'm damned. These people are going to kill me. These people are, are in a fit of bloodlust and are not going to stop until I'm six feet in the ground. And then the next day you get up and you're like, okay, you know, and, and part of it, I think, honestly, is because we're raised on this diet of all these programs like Matlock and Perry Mason and all these movies where the, you know, the truth always comes out in time and it manages to save people and all this kind of stuff. Like we've almost been programmed to believe that stuff from the time that we're watching, you know, TV as, as children. So that's still in you. You keep thinking, you know, you go from like these people are going to murder me to these people can't do this to me because I didn't do this. And if I didn't do this, then it's impossible for for them to prove that I've done something that I haven't done. An important lesson I've learned in my life, and I'm sure most adults understand, is that the world is comprised of human perspectives. It is not, it is not a world of mathematical fairness or unfairness. You cannot calculate it as simply, there are people who believe, well, this is the law. Mm -hmm. The law says you can't do it, so how could they do it? Well, I got, got news for you. The law was made up by people. Yes. And people can do anything they want. Yes. So th there, there, there's so much of this world where you'll, you'll hear people just, they're confined by this, these rules and structures, but then there are people who understand that the rules and structures are just ideas that man have, has created. I guess what I'm trying to say is exactly in your situation. So many people are probably believing the government wouldn't lie. Mm -hmm. They're here to protect us. Mm -hmm. The police are trying to stop the criminals. They wouldn't lie. Mm -hmm. And you have to explain to them human beings could lie. 
And what if those cops are the criminals? Mm-hmm. But so many people live below that understanding. Yes. It's a scary it's a scary thought, especially when you look at the government in any context. Yes. Paradise Lost, I think, was the moment. It's probably why I'm a writer now. It was like the moment where I was <clears throat> like, the justice system's corrupt, our government is corrupt. <laughs> like it was I was like eleven or twelve. And and I had always seen, you know, cops are the good guys, dare yep. officers at school, all that mm. stuff. And so at that moment, it like flipped in me. I and learned. I think that's why I was so into like the Julian stuff and all of that, because I was like, you know, our justice system's bad. <laughs> it's, 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 you know, it, it's, it is better in a lot of ways than a lot of places in the country, but human beings are always the ones running it. And the justice system is only good as the scruples of the, the culture. So if you've got, uh, you know, you look at some of these other countries and you can bribe cops left and right. Mm-hmm. You get pulled over, you give them a bribe. United States, you offer a cop a bribe, you're probably going to get arrested. And he's going to be like, I'm not going down because you offered me a bribe. I got it on camera. You're under arrest. You can't do it. The issue, however, is that humans are still humans. And if it turns out the criminals are the cops, I mean, I don't want to get too political and get to too many current events, but there's a big story right now about police officers who, who, who killed a man after a traffic stop. And the insinuation is these cops may have been involved in some kind of criminal activity themselves. The assumption can't be that just because you're wearing a uniform or a badge or in government, you are somehow not human or different. When I was on death row, we had a cop on death row, a cop in New Orleans. What had happened was a woman had filed some kind of complaint against this cop. So he hired a hitman to kill her. Whoa. So this cop and the hitman that he had killed this woman were both on death row. Wow. And, and, you know, like you're saying also about the law, like people have this idea, like the law is cut and dry. The law says this. It says you can do this. It says you can't do this. And, and in reality, for just about any law that's on the books, you can find two that contradict it. Yep. This is why so many lawyers, like before they go into law school, they major in philosophy. Because what it comes down to is not what the law says. It's who can make the more convincing argument. Yep. It's sales almost. Yes. I love this example. You can get pulled over for going through a yellow light you can get pulled over for stopping at a yellow light. People, people, you know, it depends on the jurisdiction for sure. But uh, let's say you're, you're, you're driving on the highway and the light turns yellow, so you hard brake. Cop pulls you over and says that was reckless driving. Let's say the light is yellow, so you tap the gas. You're, you're not even, you're only a couple miles over. Ah, that's, that, sorry, you were speeding. Yes. Or that was reckless. If the cop wants to, he's going to make up that reason and he's going to tell you, tell it to a judge. Yes. And then you better hope... So actually, that's a, that's a question I have for you. I wonder um, if you had a high-powered attorney, you know, if you had a million-dollar law firm backing you guys, would 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 this have happened? Would, or would they have just back, like... It's hard to say. I mean, I think if we would have had that level of money and, and prestige or power or whatever you want to call it, I don't think we would have ever been in that situation in the first place. I think the reason we were in that situation is because they considered us throw away. You know, we right. were something that nobody was ever going to question. Nobody's ever going to miss these guys. Like they're nobody. You know, these are people who live in poverty that have no kind of political connections or anything else. So nobody's going to question this. So I got I I just it it just feels like a component of the degradation of American culture. The idea that I love about America is that we are affect there, there's classes in this country, of course, you know, there's rich people, there's poor people, but you could come from the gutter and work your way up to the top. Mm-hmm. There's not supposed to be a person in the society is that, can, is that, is that no one in, in the United States is supposed to be considered throwaway. Right. This is the, this is the country where you can be a white trash trailer park kid. And then one day the president walks by and you say, F you, Mr. President. 
And they have to respect that you have the right to do that because mm-hmm. you are not throwaway, that everyone in this country does matter. And that's what makes America so much better than many other countries, especially, you know, other countries that have overt class systems that you're not allowed to move through. Right. But I, it, it, it's the craziest thing to me that there are stories like this. And then there's also, there's that story of the uh, affluenza. Have you heard of that one? Mm-mm. You know what I'm talking about, right, Cassandra? Yeah, the, the Rich kid gets into a... whatever. The kid accused of rape. Yeah, he... he, he what he like he's caught i believe right yeah i didn't and then the, it very the judge says something like he's suffering did the judge say affluenza or i think i think me, his lawyer argued it i have no idea they said basically that he's been so closely. pampered and so wealthy that he didn't understand what he was doing was wrong so mm-hmm. he shouldn't be punished and you get they slap on the wrists i mean they're they're right now in new york city you have people rampaging through restaurants you have this viral video right now of a bunch of teenagers just ransacking a restaurant. These kids aren't going to go to jail. They're not going to get punished. This is, you, I mean, your story takes place 30 odd years ago, but uh, 30 years ago. And this is what we're seeing is a, anarcho-tyranny. Have, have you ever heard, heard that phrase before? No. The idea being that there, there is chaos, but the state will enforce against you. And, and the way I view it is kind of like what you said, you're, you were throwaway. So the state knows that there's low-hanging fruit. There's easy targets to make it look like they're doing their job. Law-abiding citizens who otherwise make a wrong turn, you know, oh, well, that was an improper lane change. Here's a ticket. Oh, you were five over the limit. I'm going to pull you over. But you get some armed, you know, criminal in a big city and the cop says, well, I'm not getting shot. I'm not going to stop that guy. So you end up with cops who don't enforce the law where it needs to be enforced. You end up with cops who won't charge into the building to save the lives of children in, mm-hmm. in, a, in, a, in, a, in a security incident, security situation. And then you'll end up with, oh boy, we got a very serious crime here, but it's too hard to solve and the public's mad. Let's murder some innocent people to be done with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where, where do you stand on the death penalty now? You know, that's one of those things we were, we had just started to talk about this yeah. and we stopped a few minutes ago, but it's really hard for me to, to say one way or the other just because I saw... You know, like, for example, the law says that you're not allowed to execute people who are mentally handicapped in any capacity. You know, whether it's low IQ or brain damage where they can't or, or, or mental illness like extreme schizophrenia where they don't even understand, you know, what's going on, really. But they do. They still do all the time. Like, I'll give you one example in Arkansas. There was a guy who he was guilty. He killed his in-laws. He shot his mother-in-law and father-in-law and then shot himself in the head and gave himself a lobotomy, but he survived. Wow. But he was so mentally, like, tore up after that that whenever they got ready to execute him, they asked him what he wanted for his last meal, and he says pecan pie. They give him a pecan pie. He eats half of it, wraps the other half up, and says he's going to save that until after the execution. <laughs> so this is a guy who had no concept of what was being done to him, and they're still killing people like that. But, I mean, why shouldn't they? I'm, 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 a, I'm opposed to death penalty, but what is the argument that someone who is below a certain understanding of reality is exempt from, from death? I think it would be, you know, just, just the only thing I can figure is they think maybe this person is not put them in the right circumstances and they're no longer a danger to other people anymore. I'm not saying, like, let them back out on the street or whatever, but say this is a kind of person that needs to be in a mental institution. You know, that, that they could be prevented from ever doing something like this again in some way. But, that's, but 
I would also say there are men on death row, and this is why I say that I'm so conflicted about all of this, and I can't really say one way or the other. There were men I knew on death row that I knew personally on death row that I knew if these men ever get a shred of a chance, they will kill someone again. The same, the same argument for the mentally ill, though, can be made for any murderer, that if a guy, say, you know, kills, he has his wife, he, he premeditates a murder, it's a cop, right, the cop you described, well, lock him in a box and he's not going to kill anybody. Right. Well, I, I don't even agree with that, though. I know that even that, honestly, is, is kind of a horseshit argument, because what I saw is men like that, that they say that, you know, lock them in a box and they're never going to do anything to everybody again. They're in a building with thousands of people. Yeah. So they're still victimizing people in there. You may have people that, you know, are in mm. there for whatever, whatever reasons it is. Maybe they got caught with like meth or something like that. They weren't hurting anyone. They were just, you know, mething up, whatever the hell it is. Uh, they end up in there. You take them and put them in the situation with a person that victimizes them the entire time they're in there. And then by the time you put that person back out on the street, the argument that I always make is, you know, the, the, the number of people that will never get out of prison is a tiny, tiny amount. Almost every single person that is in prison, almost all of them will one day be back out on the street. They're going to be in your churches. They're going to be in your schools. They're going to be in your grocery stores. So it's probably not the best idea to drive them insane with torture before reintroducing them into that environment. So if you put them in a situation with people who are going to continually victimize them, beat the hell out of them, maybe rape them, take everything they've got every day, by the time they get released back out, they are going to be a worse person, not necessarily even because of their own you know, choices and actions, but they're going to be a worse person just because they are in a deep state of shock and trauma. That That's actually a really good argument that uh, has not been brought up uh, that much to me before, or, or, or I would say ever, that these people who have committed these very serious crimes are still surrounded by a bunch of other people. And, and you know, what I'm hearing is if you're a guy who did hard drugs, meaning victimless, but yourself. Mm-hmm. Maybe they caught you with cocaine or something. Right. You're now in prison with potential murderers. Yes. They could murder you. Yes. They could abuse you. And yes. so they've not been isolated from society. They're still with people. Exactly. That's a, that, that, that's a very interesting point. Because my, my attitude is has been, the fear I have with the death penalty is that innocent people will die. And they do. And they do. And uh, in your case, uh, for instance, I believe after everything I've heard that this is clearly some kind of cover up and they attempted to murder an innocent person because it made their jobs easier and I wouldn't put it past the state to do that. And so then I think about stories like that and I say, I don't, I, I don't care if there are 10 guilty people. The idea that a state would kill an innocent person, it, it destroys the whole system. The, the argument, it goes back to uh, Blackstone's formulation. Are you familiar with Blackstone's formulation? No. He said, it is better that 10 guilty persons escape than one innocent person suffer. And then Benjamin Franklin said, it's better that 100 guilty persons escape than one innocent person suffer. And there's, uh, then there's the more authoritarian dictatorial people. Uh, Otto von Bismarck said, it is better that 10 innocent people suffer than one guilty person escape. But that idea doesn't work. And the, the philosophy behind it is, if the people of your society believe that even if they are good citizens you will still try to kill them, then they have no reason to be good citizens. In fact, they have every reason to try and subvert the system to protect themselves. The system has to show people that if you are innocent, we will not let you die. We will not. We will do everything in our power to try and save you. And that means there's going to be a lot of guilty people or uh, who we say, 
because there is a preponderance of evidence of innocence, we're going to try and pursue the route of innocence. And that could get some guilty people let go. But then the incentive is to be a good person because we will try to save you. This is why I don't like the death penalty at all, because there are really nasty people, and I'll keep the politics out of it, who knowingly keep innocent people in prison, whether it's the death penalty or otherwise, because it makes them look good. It makes them look tough on crime. They can use it for their records. But then you end up with innocent people staring down a death sentence. And, you know, I often say this, but you can speak to it way better than I could. I tell people when I argue against the death penalty, I want you to imagine what it must be like to have two men with guns holding both of your arms as you're chained, walking you to die. Imagine what, it, think to yourself, in, in 10 minutes, I will be dead. They will kill me. And you know, you didn't do anything wrong. What must that feel like? And then understand that, that even if it's 0.1%, the idea that you, in support of the death penalty, would put a person through that. I don't have all the answers, you know, and, and, and I certainly, I think it's a really great point you make that these people who commit these crimes, they're still with other people. And some of these people are not violent offenders. Someone may have done heroin too much and they're a victim, but now they're in this, this, this prison where they could be around someone who would, who would hurt them in that way. And it's, that's a tough question, man. I don't have the answers for it. But even, even if somebody did do a violent crime, there's a million reasons why people would fly off the handle and do a, a violent crime and not actually be a danger to other people. But then there's people who, you know, are categorically, like, damaged, who want to torture people, who want to hurt people, who want to rape people. And so I, I think there's levels of these things. And I, I don't believe that you know, just anybody should be given the death penalty. I think that there has to be like an extremely high burden of proof. I mean, I'm one of the few people I keep getting yelled at on Twitter because I keep saying Alex Murdaugh. I didn't think there was enough evidence to convict him. Um, but in some cases, like the I woman agree. who killed Sandra Cantu, for example, the little girl in California, the fact that she didn't get the death penalty like blew my mind because she, you know, tortured her sexually and stuffed her in a suitcase. And she was somebody that this little girl trusted. Um, and, and, you know, there, the, there's like a level like I think California, I think that's the one th law that they have right is that they only give the death penalty if there's like an, an extreme circumstance on top of the murder, like if there was torture, if it was sexual, if it was a serial killer, something like that. In, in that in that case of the little girl, though, how, how is the evidence? I mean, it is it... solid. I mean, she confessed, I believe, and then she swallowed razor blades in court. It's a whole thing. I got wow. really down that wow. rabbit hole. <laughs> uh, I could go on about that. Well, one I, I I would have to just ask Damien. I mean, as as someone with real experience dealing with this, your views. Well, I have one specific one, though. You've probably been asked this before. Would you support the death penalty if you got the DNA evidence done and they found out who it was and, you know, that led to finding more evidence and just absolutely proving who actually killed those little boys? Would you support the death penalty for them? Even in that situation, I can't say solidly yes or no. I think I would really have to look at it and... You know, maybe it was one of the victim's family members who was cracked out of their mind at the time and, and didn't, that's not necessarily like a, a serial killer or something. Or maybe it's a cop. Yeah. Maybe it's someone that the public has entrusted, you know, 
put a huge amount of faith and trust in to uphold society and and this person has used that position to murder someone and almost mur to, to murder three children and then almost murder me on top of it it would be really hard for me in that situation to not want someone to seek the death penalty but you know something you wow. asked a while ago something you said you said what would it feel like like if you know you didn't do this and you've got people leading you to your execution i'll tell you exactly what it feels like it makes you lose all faith and all hope in humanity you look at everything you look at the system you look at the media you know because the media in the very beginning before they the evidence started to come out in our favor and all that the media was cheering it on like you had like you said you had like Oprah Winfrey and all these people doing it, all these episodes of shows on satanic panic making people howl for my blood it makes you realize all of this stuff is flawed. It's it, it, either it's flawed because it's, you know, humans are flawed or it's flawed because someone is making money off of it and has an, yep. a vested interest in promoting a certain image or, or whatever it is. It makes you look at humanity as being absolutely lost and, and damned and you just see every human institution as dirty. It robs you of your faith in humanity. But I, I, I think it's, it's, there are good people in this world and there are people who do fight for good, but an angry mob is dangerous. Yes. And I think it's, it's not so much that it's, it's, it's exposing you to the darkest element of humanity in, in, in how these machines how they operate. I mean, I was just talking about this the other day over something substantially less, uh, let's call it weighted, a story that's particularly irrelevant to the average person, but really pissed me off. Schemers, these, these, the, 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 these, these people who, who seek personal gain and they don't care what damage it will bring. And it can scale up from the simplest lying to the press or, or lying to the public to get money all the way up to being willing to kill an innocent person if it protects you. But uh, just to, to use all of the pop culture references I can, because I love to, it, it reminds me of uh, the Joker in The Dark Knight when he's, uh, have, you, have you seen The Dark Knight? Mm -hmm. Yeah. When he's sitting over Harvey Dent and he says, nobody cares uh, uh, when it all goes according to, uh, as long as it all goes according to plan, even if that plan is horrifying. Like if you tell someone that a truckload of soldiers will be blown up or a gangbanger will get shot, nobody cares. But if you say the mayor's going to die, then everyone goes insane. And, and that's it. If the media's in on it, if the culture is all cheering for it, if the people are marching out in the streets with pitchforks, then everyone is content to see an innocent person be killed. Because that, that's what the, 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 the human system has decided. And everybody profiting off of it. And so many of these people probably know it's not true. Many of these people know that they're lying, but it doesn't matter because the angry mob's not throwing the pitchforks at them. In fact, the angry mob is giving them money mm -hmm. and that money, that gets them cheeseburgers, that gets yes. them a new car. And yes. you look at uh, the Covington kids story, which is again, substantially less um, heavy. And this, this, this young kid is standing on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and a man walks up to him banging a drum in his face. What does every media outlet do? They accuse the kid of being racist because that's what makes them the money. They don't mm -hmm. care if it's true. They're not going to check the evidence. All they know is, hey, every, hey, look, we're going to side with the audience on this one. This is what they said, so this is what we go for. Yep. And it gets scary when you realize it can result in someone dying. 
Yeah. What's Thank scary, goodness for HBO. Yes, Sorry. absolutely. But what what's scary also is when you start to realize in that situation, like in the early days, I had the media do stuff to me, say stuff about me that wasn't like completely and absolutely an outright blatant lie, but was close enough to it to pretty much qualify. I forgot where I was going with that. Um, the media lies. Yeah. Oh, the, you know, going back to the thing about law and people think the law is cut and dry and all this sort of stuff. There is not one single law anywhere that says the media has to tell you the truth. Yep. None. They can say anything yeah. they want to say. I mean, I don't even necessarily know if HBO was trying to portray you guys as innocent in the first one. Um, I mean, they let buyers go on there and talk about how they found the boys um, genitals in yes. your house in a jar, which was completely made up. Whoa. And they let what? him say that yeah. in the documentary. I mean, they do like check him on it after, but it's like startling to, to hear him say it. Um, and so I'd always, I always kind of wondered if they were actually on your side in the first one or if the outpouring of support from people after it was just so no. huge that they, so they realized that they need to look into it more. That's, that's actually kind of an interesting story. They heard about this case because there was a very small mention of it in the New York Times that said something about like three teenagers going to trial in Arkansas for human sacrifice, something like that. The, the guys from HBO said they flew down there thinking with a story like that, this is a cut and dried case. These guys are guilty. We want to go down there and just film it to be like, you know, why did they do this? How did something like this happen? That sort of thing. They went there expecting us to be guilty. And they end the first one with you saying like the boogeyman comment. So they, it, what they told us was about two thirds of the way through making the documentary, they started to realize something's not adding up here. Wow. And that, uh, you had a public defender, right? I, yes. I, I think yes. he said the same thing, didn't he? That at first he was like, okay, you know, these kids did it. And then he goes in there and goes, hey, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. I've never seen a documentary that had so much access either. And, and, and they show everything is what makes it really startling. Like they show the boys' bodies and wow. the mutilation, everything. But the, the amount of access that they had to everyone in the town and the whole court and everything, it was just crazy to watch. And then it was amazing when they did the follow-up and they had, you know, more people on your side. And well, I scary. thought that was really cool. What made you trust them enough to, to be so open? It wasn't necessarily that I trusted them, to be honest. It was that I knew I was telling the truth. Mm -hmm. I knew I didn't have anything to hide. So it's not like there's going to be any gotcha moments or anything like that. So I went into it thinking, number one, I don't have anything to hide. Number two, what do I have to lose? Let them film it. Let them see what's going on. And that was it. Yeah. The, what, the what do I have to lose is resonates. The what do I have to hide? Oh, boy. I don't trust the media. You know, you could, uh, they, they've got all sorts of tricks. Well, now I feel the same. But yeah. keep in mind, I was an 18-year-old kid right. with yeah. no experience with any of that stuff. No knowledge of how the world works or, you know. Thank what, goodness, what, though. Yeah, exactly. I, but, you know, when I grew up, like when I was 18 years old, like I, I did not know what was going on in the world. You know, we lived like honestly just like savages i couldn't have told you who the governor was or any of that so it was like that was another world to us that was rich people business like that didn't affect our struggling and trying to survive from day to day i had no knowledge no understanding of how the world worked all i knew was survival in poverty that was it yeah. 
So I didn't understand yet, like what the media is actually like or any of that sort of stuff. Yeah, they they love the they love these tricks. You could you could tell them a direct quote that is true, and they know that if they quote you, it will make it make you look innocent. So instead, they will contextualize and paraphrase. So a simple example would would be you saying something like, "Hey, what's your favorite uh, pizza topping?" You can say, "Oh, I." I love pepperoni pizza. And then instead of quoting you, they'll say, his tone was sarcasm. Mm -hmm. And he went on to describe his, quote, love for pizza. And then it presents it as though you actually don't like it. They can, they can manipulate what you say and get away with it. Yes. I, I, I suppose, however, the scariest thing is there's probably a lot of people in your position or have been throughout the years since who don't have HBO coming yes. and doing a documentary. They estimate right now, a lot of people who work in this industry, like the legal industry, work on death penalty cases, all that, they estimate that as many as one out of every 10 people executed are innocent. I, that's, mm. I can't, and that, 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 that goes right into Blackstone's formulation for me. It is better that 10 people escape than one innocent person suffers. And we're, and but we're then saying- how many more innocent people suffer from that person escaping? But it that, depends that, that, how, how dangerous of a person we're talking about, in my opinion. So the, the challenge, I suppose, is- What if he if, gets out and kills 10 more people? Well, I, I think people should have guns. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> I don't know, man. Like, <laughs> I can't argue with that. Right, so that, that's the challenge. It's, it's the, the safety of an individual is partly the responsibility of the individual. And I agree with that argument to an extent. You know, if you've got a murderer in there and you're like, well, we can't be sure there's not enough evidence, that's a preponderance of evidence, but we're not going to kill him. Well, then that, that could still mean life in prison. The challenge then is like, we all pay for that. We have to pay a lot of money to keep people locked up. And then you still have the circumstance where an innocent person gets life in prison, which is still bad. So I just, I, I, I wish this world had very easy answers. It just doesn't. But my view is for me personally, I would rather have 10 serial killers walking onto my property wielding powerful weapons than to be sitting defenseless in a box with a guard outside saying, we will kill you tomorrow. Because at least with those 10 people, I have, a, I have an opportunity and the, the, the right to defend myself. And the, the, but what the, if you had children playing outside? What if your mom was outside gardening? Like, you know, the, having extremely dangerous people running around, it, it does put create more victims eventually. I mean... I, I don't know. But the, the question is then, good answer for it. are we responsible? I back and forth on the issue constantly. But it, it, is, it, is, it is difficult. I view it as um, peaceful slavery versus dangerous freedom and recognizing that I don't want to empower the state to, to kill innocent people. But that also means I probably will be faced with a very dangerous circumstance from a dangerous individual who probably should have been stopped and, and, and wasn't. But that responsibility, to a certain degree, will be on me and not the state. But you're also an adult. What about children who are walking to school? What about the, you know, the kids in your case? I, I mean, I. If, but this is the world. If they found out somebody did it, say it was like the Bojangles guy, and he was, you know, some truck driver who was a serial killer, and he gets linked to a whole bunch of other murders across the country. I would want that person to be executed if they proved it. Um, but again, I wouldn't trust them necessarily to prove it at this point right. because they've already right. shown exactly how it, it's and that's very the thing, complicated say that me. they come on the news and they tell you something that seems to show with 100 percent 
proof that this person is guilty, once again, you're back to, well, how do I know they're telling me the truth? Right. right. Like to give an the example, state? what you were saying about how they take things out of context and all that, this is what I mean whenever I say that they did things to me that came right up to the line of lying, but didn't, at one point I'm sitting in jail waiting to go to trial and the news is on TV, and I see this report come on saying that the police had went back into the place where I lived because the people who had moved in there after we did had told the police that they had found a stick in the closet that had something red on the end of it and it had hair stuck to it. And the way the media is describing it, it sounds like they found like a club or a baseball bat with hair and blood on the end of it. So I'm thinking like, what the hell? When I'm watching this on the news, I'm like, I know there was nothing like that in my house. Did they set me up? Did the cops go back and put something there? When I can make a phone call, I call home and ask what's going on. My mom tells me it was a Sherwin-Williams paint stick that you used to mix paint with. <laughs> and the hair, st and it was paint, red paint, yeah. and the hair stuck to it. We had two Pomeranians. The hair stuck oh, to it was Pomeranian hair. Dog hair and paint, and they said a stick with red a red substance a red and hair stuck to it. And they never came on. There was never a mention of it again that clarified what it was or anything else. Sweeps week, you know? Hey, we got to get ratings. Let's uh, let's do the story. Yep. That's, a, that, 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 that's, the, that's the scary thing about... Uh, man, I wish, I wish there was an easy way to solve the problems. I do. But when, when the media lies, gets a mob of people to call for blood, then the state goes... Well, look, it's easier to kill the guy than it is to argue with a bunch of angry mob, uh, with an angry mob, so just do it. I've been telling people over the past few years, as we've seen increasing political tensions in this country, when, when people come to protest at your house and they're screaming and yelling, the cop's going to look at 100 people who are ready to throw bricks and say, we can't deal with that, but we can arrest this one guy who's sitting on his couch watching, you know, reruns of Murder, She Wrote. That's easy, mm -hmm. and that's that's what they will do, and it's and it's not unique to this time. It's 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 what governments have always looked at. It's a, it's the cost risk analysis. Try to stop a mob of fifty angry armed people. Arrest one man, and then everyone shuts up. Mm -hmm. That's the way they go, over and over again. Yeah, you got really lucky though with how that turned out, and the way that they followed up on it. And then, you, I mean, you met your wife through that. And I don't consider it luck at all. I it, consider it divine intervention. It's incredible. Wow. Like, well, I mean. Are you, are you religious? That's a very difficult question for, for me to answer just because of the, like, like connotations and preconceived ideas and stuff that right. people have whenever yeah. they, you know, think of the word religion. Uh, but I believe one of, if not the most important thing in in my life is deliberately cultivating a connection to divinity. Yes. Yeah. I, I Maybe religious is the wrong word because I, I wouldn't describe myself as religious, but I would say that I believe in something greater and I believe in some kind of universal order or whatever you want to call it. I think there's something more to all this. And uh, there's this song... I love the pop culture references, you guys know that. There's, there's a song called Judith by the band A Perfect Circle. Hmm. I don't know if you guys have ever heard it, but it's just so good. And it's uh, the singer, Maynard, is, is basically, his mom had a stroke and became paralyzed. So he writes this song about how even though he's the one who did this to you, you keep praising his name and you never stop to, ask, to, to question why. And I look at that, I'm almost like, it, it, it's, 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 he didn't understand. 
you know, when his mother was very religious, has a stroke, but keeps praying and, and believing in something. And I think that song is actually quite beautiful in the anger of a son who saw his mom hurt and doesn't understand why she would still have faith in Jesus. And I'm not saying people should have faith in Jesus or anything like that. I just think the world is the way it is. It's this machine that churns and, and calculates. But there is some something divine that you can, I don't know if pray is the right word or, you know, meditate to as some, you know, more hippie type individuals, new age Ian types uh, might, might uh, Ian's my friend, he's very spiritual or whatever, or hippie might believe. But I, I think there's, there's a potential for intervention of some sort to save you from the circumstances that, you know. I think it was a great example of good journalism, which doesn't really exist anymore. And I wish it did. <laughs> yeah. And, and the question I suppose is how do we find more people who are in a similar, situ similar situation and then give them the level of, uh, of media okay. attention that gets them, that saves them. I don't think you could ever get access like mm -mm. they had back no. then. I, I mean, mean, in our case, it was a perfect storm. Yeah. You know, not only did you have the satanic panic stuff going on, which people were just really like riveted to, wanting to know more. They wanted all the, like they didn't tune into my situation to see an innocent guy going through a trial. They tuned into my situation because they wanted gory details. Wow. That you know, they were basically the public wanted to like rubberneck, and then it was because of that rubbernecking that they realized, oh, this isn't what it was portrayed to be. So it was just a perfect storm. I don't know how you would orchestrate that. And honestly. it was wild. I mean, like buyers giving the knife to the mm -hmm. HBO production crew with the blood on it that he had supposedly never like just all of the things. Wow. It was just so like captivating. I mean, I. It, I know it's your life, so it's weird. It's weird for me to even say that. Um, but the way that they did it, it, you couldn't look away from it. And I think that that probably saved your life. They made they made a movie and about it. I didn't think they? it's really cool that yeah. they like, they did that. Yeah. Was it who, who was it? Reese Witherspoon or something? Yeah, yeah. The Devil's Knot. Yeah. But what? it's you know it's one of those th like going back for just a second to what you said about like r religion or whatever, and going back to what Cassandra was just saying about you know like it's it's my life or whatever. I think a lot of people whenever they think of me, they think I am almost synonymous with this case. Like like this case is me. This case is like the the apex or the you know the focal point or the crux or whatever it is of my life situation. It was what formed me or or whatever. And honestly. For me, it's not like that at all. For me, this this case was almost, this is something that I will never be able to make people out here understand, but it was almost in a very real way insignificant to my development. Uh, you know, this, this will sound crazy because so many people have played such a huge role in in the development of who I am and how I view the world and everybody else. But like when you're talking about like spirituality, like the reason I'm hesitant to say is because it's another one of those things that most people have like preconceived ideas about or anything else. But the practice that, that I, that allowed me to survive when I was in there and that shapes the way my, that I understand divinity and all of this stuff is ceremonial magic, Western hermeticism. And I always say that the two biggest people that I don't know in real life that played a huge role in shaping who I am would be Aleister Crowley and Joel Osteen. Wow. I, you know, I credit Joel Osteen. It's like ceremonial magic is, is one of the things that saved my life, but so is listening to the, the messages of Joel Osteen. I went from one day when I was in there feeling like I can't do this. I can't get up another day. They're going to come in the cell and find me dead tomorrow. And it's a Sunday. You only get three pr 
three TV channels in prison. I turn on all three of them, and they're all three televangelists. So I figure I may as well just watch one. So I just randomly left it on the one that Joel Osteen was on. Within 30 minutes, I went from feeling like I can't get up anymore to feeling like getting up and turning cartwheels. Wow. So I forgot where I was going with this. I did have a point. Um, have you ever reached out to him? or Magic and... Uh, I haven't reached out to him, but but uh, one time, you know, I live in New Orleans, so you have hurricanes there all the time, and you have to flee like crazy. And we, one of the times when we uh, were running from a hurricane, we evacuated to Houston, and we thought, while we're here, why not go to his church? So we went there, and and for me, it was one of those incredibly surreal moments, you know, seeing this guy that on on a TV screen saved my life when I was in prison. Oh, that was my point. So the point of what I was what I was getting to was. Like one of the reasons that I say that that this isn't like the the culmination of who I am, like I'm not synonymous with the case is because when I was in prison, one of the things Joel Osteen says that I took away from his stuff is he says, whatever you're going through, it's not happening to you. It's happening for you. And when I look back in hindsight now, I see that everything I went through, don't get me wrong, it wasn't pleasant. It wasn't easy. I wouldn't choose to do it, but I see how it made me the person that I am now. And, and one of the things that it did was provided me with a kind of life that I didn't have to think about getting up every day and going to a nine to five job. I was locked in a cell for a decade in solitary confinement where the only thing that I had to focus on was my spiritual practice, not belief, not faith, not hope, but an actual practice that forced me to build a world to focus on other than those prison walls. Like I reached a point, if you're familiar with Timothy Leary, when he was doing all the LSD experiments, at one time he, he ends up in prison and Ram Dass goes to visit him. And Ram Dass tells him, we've come up with a plan to break you out of here. And Timothy Leary says, you can't do that. I've got too much work to do. That's how I had almost started to feel in prison by the very end. I had been so like 100% dedicated and focused on these practices and like the way they were changing me and, and my experiences that I no longer thought about the, the fact that I was even in prison anymore. That, that uh, Joel Osteen statement, that, that's a good one. It's happening for you. Yes. And I think, you know, my life was shaped by a lot of very difficult circumstances, nowhere near as difficult as yours. Uh, but all of the bad things that I went through and all the hardships made me stronger and more capable and able to do the work that I do. So that is, that is, that's a good one. You know, I, I wouldn't call it perfect. Some people go through things and the end result is just bad in the long run. I agree. But I think it's about uh, your, your state of mind. And for you, it sounds like you're in this hell, but he, he was able to say something so simple to you that made you try and focus on what you could build from it or, or what you could do to, 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 to have a better state of mind. That's powerful stuff. That's or even just distract you from from the misery. Like I, you know, most of the men that were there when I was on death row, I think there were like give or take 30 people on death row total. And I would say almost every single one of those people was in a living hell. And I wasn't. So that to me, that's kind of the like the testimony of, of what's possible with, you know, the right mindset and being focused on what you're doing, knowing what you came into this world to do and applying yourself to it will get you through so much hardship that it's insane because you don't focus on the hardship. You focus on what it is that you're passionate about, what it is that you're doing. 
Do you ever feel like, did you ever feel like you were being punished for something divinely? I mean, you mentioned you felt like it was divine intervention to get out, but I wonder if... I, I don't think I ever felt like I was being punished, but I, I did. It was hard to get away from the, the feeling sometimes that this is happening for a reason, that this isn't just... And, and maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was just me feeling that way or whatever it was. But I, oftentimes I did have the feeling like, you know, this is for a reason that, you know, maybe this isn't correct. Like you said, people go through horrible things all the time. A lot of times people are destroyed by it. But I, I always had the feeling that whatever you want to call it, God, the universe, the source that everything came from and to which everything will one day return, whatever it is, I always had this feeling that it wouldn't be allowing this to happen unless it was, were for a reason of some sort. And that got me through a lot, too. Yeah. It's hard to imagine the reason for some things. When, and, but, you know, I wouldn't... I think people should... Uh, there, there, there are a lot of people who say that things happen for a reason, but then you have to also have to consider that sometimes the reasons may be beyond our understanding. Mm-hmm. Exactly. What, what was it like for you when you got out? I mean, you you guys, you and Lori got married while you were in prison. Um, did you guys move in together right away? Did like what was it like coming into a world with the internet and it was, smartphones? And- it was absolutely devastating. You know, people think that getting out of prison, getting off death row, that that's like the finish line. And you hit that and you live happily ever after. And we had not given one single second of thought to what comes after this. Like the entirety of everything we're we're doing, we're focused on the finish line of getting me off of death row. So when that happens, you realize it's not like the credits roll. You know, it's not like this is the end of the story. When I walked off of death row, I did not have a single penny to my name. I had nowhere to go. I didn't have so much as a suit of clothes to change into. So we had to hit the ground running. I am in a state of shock and trauma. I go from not only 20 years in prison, 10 of those, almost 10 of those being in solitary confinement to literally overnight being on the streets of Manhattan. It completely and absolutely destroyed me. I had a severe nervous breakdown. When people are thinking I'm supposed to be celebrating and happy, I am breaking down and thinking life out here is harder than life in prison was. It destroyed me to the point that I have almost no memory of the first two years that I was out of prison. If you add up everything that I could remember altogether, it would equal a few hours. I would, you know, a lot of it was like the brain trauma, stuff like that, but I would reintroduce myself to the same person over and over and over again. You know, people that I had dinner with the night before, I would reintroduce myself to them the next day, not even being able to remember that. How are you doing now? Getting better. You know, um, I, I think I've come a long, long way in the past. I've been out 11 years now. And, you know, a lot of it, I don't think there's any anything that's going to completely, you know, fix everything automatically, right. but uh, a lot, a lot better. You know, all in all, and, and once again, it's like that thing, you know, about it didn't happen to me, it, it happened for me. It's like, yeah, I could look at that, like, you know, even the memory issues and the nervous breakdowns and all that as, as you know, something horrific, but... It led me to where I am now, which is a relatively happy person. I think I'm probably happier than, you know, honestly, this might sound weird or whatever, but I'm probably happier than 90% of the people that I come in contact with. You know, I often say there's a lot of people who are born into this world with a silver spoon. Everything's very, very good. They have access to the best food. They have a car whenever they need it. And then when they become adults and now they're on their own, they lose all that and it feels painful. 
But if you come from the bottom and then later on in life, you got a $600 car that can drive a little bit and you're getting a cheeseburger every day, you're like, wow, this is great. Exactly. I can't believe how good life is. I never exactly. thought I'd be here. Exactly. So here's the very, very cliche thing. Like, what was the first thing you ate after you got off death row, got out? Everything. No, Everything. no, no. <laughs> really, we, we went to, uh, we wanted to get out of Arkansas as soon as possible. So the, the minute that I got out of prison, my very first stop, I had to go to the DMV, straight from prison to the DMV to get an ID to even be able to fly. Uh, we stayed that night in a hotel. We went out of Arkansas across the state line over into Memphis. And of course, everybody who had supported us for years, you know, like a lot of people like Eddie Vedder were, were there at this hotel, did like a rooftop party. One of the things he did before I got to the hotel was called room service and had them bring everything on the menu <laughs> to the room so that wow. whenever I got there, everything that the hotel served was, was in the room. I mean, so what was that like? I have well, to imagine the food wasn't too good. In keep, well, you know, keep in mind, um, I was incredibly nauseous. You know, that was one of the things about the brain trauma is like for the first at least year that I was out, I was sick all the time. Like you're, you're nauseous, you have vertigo, stuff like that. So it wasn't like I was starving. It's like, you know, I ate it ate a little bit of everything, but it was almost like just a robotic action. It's not like you're actually enjoying it or anything because you're you're being shattered. You know, you're going through trauma. There's a, I think it's the Green Mile. Man, I'm just all, all, all about movies. Uh, I don't know if you've seen that one. Mm -hmm. Many times. It's is it, That's the one where when the guy finally gets out, he hangs himself. I yes. Believe, right? Yeah, yep. And that's that, that I mean, it's a movie, I know, but it, people need to understand, and you can probably speak to this well better than, way better than I could as someone who just sees it in movies, you build your entire body. You know, if you're, you were in for 18 years, mm -hmm. every seven years, every cell in your body has been replaced. So you're, you're a new person. That means everything that makes up who you are, your, 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 your worldview, your, your consumption of information and food, the people you interact with is incarceration. Mm -hmm. And then you come out to this world, not only it's, it's being somewhere entirely different, where everything's different, the technology is different. I, I remember hearing uh, um, one guy Told me how he went to he went to jail. I think, or this was this was a, there was a post online. This was a post online actually. A guy goes to prison in the mid two thousands only for a few years for for some you know low level felony. When he gets out, everyone's got cell phones connected to the internet, and that because that jump happened from like two thousand seven two thousand eight. All of a sudden, everybody had smartphones, touch screens that can go online. So he goes from this world where there's no internet. When he gets out everyone's got access to everything and it tripped him up. Same for me. Yeah. Same. For, I went in in 1993. I came out in 2011. That was one of the things like that I could not understand about the world. You know, I used to have panic attacks for things like using a debit card. You know how when you go to the grocery store, the thing everybody takes for granted now, you put your card in the little machine, put your number in, and that pays for groceries. To me, that was like alien spaceship level technology. I didn't know how to use that, didn't understand. Like I can remember going to the bank one time to try to deposit a check. And when I get up to the window, you know, I wait in line. When it's finally my turn, I get up to the window and I have a panic attack and turn around and had to leave without doing it. It just because all this stuff was completely and absolute. I had never used an ATM machine. I had never used a cell phone. I had never seen the internet. You know, I had seen on TV like the development of things like computers, but like when I went in prison, a computer was a glorified typewriter for rich people. 
Like you would put something into it and it would take 30 minutes for that printer to, you know, gradually print something out. Oh, yeah, out. dot matrix printers. That's all I knew about computers. Yeah. I feel like they don't, I mean, that's got to be a, a, key, a key component of prison reform right there is people need to be able to, when they leave, re-enter society easily. Otherwise, I feel like that's probably a component of recidivism. Yes. When you get out, you're like, I don't know what to do. So yes. what do you do? You take. Well, keep in mind, like talk, even talking about recidivism, I mean, there's so many rabbit holes you could go down here. But like with recidivism, you know, politicians give lip service to doing away with recidivism, de decreasing rates of recidivism, all this sort of stuff. But keep in mind, they make money off of every single person in prison. Yep. They do things that they know increases your chance of recidivism. You know, for example, they know that the more contacts and, and connections you have in the outside world with family, with friends, with community, the less likely that you are to come back to prison. So they deliberately do everything they can to limit that because they want you to come back to prison. They want to make money off of you. I was in there for 18 years and 76 days, and in that time I did not see one single shred of anything that could be even remotely considered rehabilitation. Have you heard the story out of Michigan where this judge was selling kids to a private juvenile facility? No, but it doesn't surprise me. Yep. This is the scary stuff about the system. I mean, look, we can I, I can praise the founding fathers, the constitution and all of these things, but if we don't have a if we don't have scruples and a strong moral foundation as a people in this country, these things are meaningless. It's it's just a piece of paper. There was a judge who You'd get some 15-year-old kid who pushed someone in their school, no real harm, but he would say, that's, that's assault, so you're, you're going to juvie for four months. The kid would go to juvie. Once in, the juvenile facility would try to keep him there and say, oh, oh you committed a crime now. Some kid would pick a fight. And say, oh, you, another assault. That's another three months. And the judge was getting kickbacks. I think it was more than one judge, actually. Yeah. That's kind of stuff that freaks me out, you know. Have you ever looked into, done any research on like the private prison industry? A little bit. It is not a fan. It is horrifying. You had people, they, they had to shut the private prison in Arkansas down at one point because you had guys that had been in there for years and never even been issued a pair of shoes because they didn't want to cut into the profit margins. Wow. And then you have this industry lobbying to make more things illegal, to make it easier for them to get, I don't know what you'd call it, but... Slave labor. Yeah. That's the, what it the, is. Right. The... This is, this is, it's the craziest thing. I mean, for the private prisons, there's an argument about government prisons being not so well run because there's no incentive to run it better. But with private prisons, there's an incentive to, to maximize profit, which means the more people in prison, the more prisons the, the government has to pay for. And now you've got the worst of both worlds, a government that doesn't care with unlimited funding stolen from the public mm -hmm. to fund people being unjustly locked up. Yes. This scary reality. But you bring up a good point about slave labor. I think it was Kanye West, yay, he tweeted something like re repeal the 13th Amendment or whatever, which was what abolished slavery. Mm -hmm. But that's not what he meant. The 13th Amendment legalizes slavery in the context of the prison system. And he was saying we should not have slavery at all. And, he, and he's right. He's completely right about it. Now, as for the things he said later on in his life, you know, we won't get into that. But I do think that people need to realize we've seen these instances in California this one shocks people. Prison, prisoners are used to fight wildfires. Mm -hmm. You have people who are in prison and they are told, you want to go outside? Go fight a wildfire. Like th th their chance of, of seeing fresh air and freedom is to risk their lives for like a dollar an hour. Mm -hmm. That's slave labor. I don't think it should be allowed. I think if we're going to lock someone up, it is us taking the responsibility 
to rehabilitate, which means our prisons should be focused on education, reform, uh, um, modern technology, like job training kind of things. And as you mentioned, connecting them with, with other people and family as much as possible. So I'm, I'm, I think we need a dramatic and drastic overhaul of the entire prison system in this country. Well, what you're describing would be a true Department of Correction. That's what we call it now. We call it the Department of Correction, meaning to fix, to remedy, to fix something that's broken and send it back in a way that's going to make society better. But what we actually have is more like a Department of Punishment. Retribution. Yes, exactly. And I've talked to people, and they, uh, many people who've come on my, my uh, show on Timcast IRL and have said that, but isn't retribution something that's, it's not a bad thing, is it? And it's like, I don't, I don't, I think retribution is more emotional satisfaction, mm. which can be important if you have an angry mob who is justly angry, not unjustly angry, and we want there to be a sense of justice so that you know bad people are punished and innocent people are, are saved. So that, that can be. The problem is, if we're mechanizing it, if it is just this logic system, a machine that just turns people in, churns people out, I mean, that's not doing anything for anybody. Retribution in that instance is going to give people emotional satisfaction, but then damage other people, increase the problem, only make it worse. We got to figure out how we can make people feel like they're satisfied, but also truly rehabilitate. Right. Yeah. Otherwise, it just, the system doesn't work. It's a scary thought right now that uh, for those that have been on the, on the, on the, receiving end of the of the unjust legal system. It's a scary thought that uh, at any moment, and, it, and it's not like it's, it happens to everybody. It is rare to a certain degree, but they could just lie and give you a ticket. They could lie and enter your home. They I could mean, make up not excuses. Not talk about politics, but I mean, there were people, there were grandmothers at, who were at the Capitol on January 6th who literally just walked onto the lawn and are, you know, have been arrested. There's a... Like, there, it's crazy. There was a woman who was not there and the police raided her home in Alaska. Yeah. There's a, there's a story. I just saw this uh, two weeks ago. I'm sitting in my bed. I wake up and I get sent a funny video from uh, Seamus Coughlin, our friend who runs his show, Freedom Tunes. After I watch this funny little cartoon, I get recommended a video. 19-year-old college football player driving home from a friend's house gets pulled over the first thing the cop does is say what how many drinks have you had and he's like none and he was like okay, get out of the car and he's like okay he gives this kid a field sobriety test kid passes but no matter what the kid does the cop says why are you failing why are you failing he says something like take take 10 steps and count them out and he goes okay so then the kid starts doing the steps and he goes why aren't you counting and he goes huh like, why, why are you acting so weird? He's like, I don't understand what you want me to do. And so the kid passed the field sobriety test, but didn't do things like say the number out loud of steps, which is nitpicking. Mm -hmm. He then says, he, the kid goes, dude, do you want to blow me? Like, I'll blow right now. And he meant breathalyzer, but mm -hmm. it is kind of, you know, suggestive. And then the cop immediately turns it into something dark. The kid bl blows the breathalyzer zero, zero, zero. On the body camera footage, you can see the cop showing all zeros. And then he goes... Why are your eyes bloodshot? And he's like, what, dude? He's like, you accuse me of drinking alcohol. And then when I blow zeros, because I know I blew zeros. Now you're saying I'm smoking weed. He's like, I don't smoke. And then he's like, when was the last time you smoked? And the kid thinks, and he goes, I don't know. And he goes, why'd you hesitate? And he's like, dude, I'm on the college football team. I get drug tested every Friday. If I smoke, they'll kick me off the team. And he goes, yeah, well, it's Saturday. So he could have smoked today. And he was like, dude, it stays in your system. What is going on? And the cop goes, you're under arrest for driving under the influence. 
And this kid was like, I didn't do anything, man. Doesn't matter. Cop said it. Cop did it. Kid got lucky enough that his family had the ability to fight back. But this stuff happens all the time. And I think for a lot of people, you got this uh, protest movement, you know, defund the police and abolish the police and all that stuff. A lot of people who are more conservative, they live in areas where they don't see this as often because if right. you're in a sparsely populated area, your interaction with the cop, cops probably way less. And there's very few cops. You know, so I, when I, I, out here, we, we know the cops out here. Um, I, I know some of the ranking officers in, in our department because there's not that many of them. I see them outside and they're like, hey, Tim, how's it going? Hey, how's it going? Well, of course, the guy who knows you is much less likely to falsely accuse you. But right. you move to a big city or a bigger city where you've got a thousand cops. They don't know you. They don't care. And they're not going to deal with it. Some of these cops could be bad people. And then what happens is you get a cop who says, I may have made a mistake arresting this guy. I don't want to lose my job. Hey, get my back. And then his buddy cop says, you got it. And there you go. In your in your case, sometimes it's even more vindictive than that, though. Like whenever, uh, like at, towards the end of my case, I can't remember exactly how long it was before I got out, but the Arkansas Supreme Court ruled that there was going to be another hearing, and that finally we were going to be able to present all the evidence that we had accumulated up until that point. Within ten minutes of that being announced on the news, there were like thirty guards in my prison cell destroying everything I owned, looking for any possible way that they could to throw me in the hole. Wow. Every like the one of the huge things that saved my life when I was in prison was doing interviews, keeping the spotlight on on Arkansas, like talking about this case, and I I was doing them nonstop, constantly, uh, and every single time I did that, the way the prison looked at it which is like an arm of, of law enforcement, they looked at it as, I'm not bringing attention to this case. I'm bringing attention to them, to the system. Every single one that I did, I knew I was going to get some sort of punishment for. They were going to do something to retaliate against me in some sort of way. They come into my cell one day. This was earlier. Uh, you know, I'd been there probably less than two years by this point. I do an interview with the local news. Next thing I know, the guards are at my door, and one of them goes into my cell. He pulls a knife out of his boot and says, what are you doing with this? I wow. was like, what could I say? It's like, yep. I just watched you pull that out of your boot. Good luck. They took me back to the part of the prison they called the hole, and for the next 18 days, they beat the living hell out of me. They beat me to the point that I thought I was going to die at one point. I was wow. pissing blood. The only thing that saved my life was a lot of times the sewage system would overflow and you'd find yourself like standing in ankle deep raw sewage. Well, the guards aren't going to clean it up. What they do is bring in inmates from the other part of the prison to clean it up. It was them. They bring those inmates in to clean up the sewage water. They saw what was being done to me. They went to a deacon from the Catholic Church and said, they're killing this guy back Whoa. there. The deacon goes to the warden and he says, I know what you're doing to this guy. And if, if it doesn't stop, I'm going to start telling people. That was the only reason they didn't beat me to death back in the hole is because they did not want word of what was happening inside the system, inside those walls, inside that prison being leaked out into the outside world. And that was a long time ago, I imagine, right? Yeah, that was like within the first two years I was there. How do we get accountability for the people who do stuff like this? Like, I, like There's no way. Those guards should be in jail. Those guards should be locked up. I'm thinking about... I, I, I wish there was a way to know all of the stories like, like yours that are happening right now and make them stop. Yeah. I just, how do you do it, you know? Would, would you be able to sue for that? Or is it too long? Or is it covered under the Alford plea? Like, 
I mean, if they told Deacon and there's witnesses and stuff, couldn't you? Well, keep in mind that was almost 30 years ago. The Deacon at that point was like in his 70s, so he's dead now. It's like, you know, I don't even know who the inmates were because they weren't on death row. They were like from other parts of the prison that they brought out there. So it's, you know, stuff like that is all. And and keep in mind, this would have been back in like 96 before they had cameras in every part of the prison. They still, to this day, they know like the blank spots on the cameras. They know, you know, where they can go to get away with things. But back then there were no cameras in prisons. Like it was just the Wild West in there. Yeah. This kind of stuff. Oh man, it's it's kind of depressing, you know. I don't want to be blackpilled, as it were, but I definitely think it's it's we want to believe in the goodness of humanity. We want to we don't want to lose hope, like you were saying, and feel like everything's rotten. But I I do kind of feel like there's a yin yang of the universe of the world. There's the light side and the dark side. So so many of us are either stuck looking at one or the other. I think for the people who live in this world and think everything's great, and, you know, we need prisons and all this stuff, we need to realize they're deep problems and we need, to, we need to root them out. We can't ignore it. But you get a lot of people saying things like abolish prisons or abolish police and things like that. And it's like, well, we don't want to go extreme. We want bad people to be held accountable. We want good people to be rewarded. I do think the system is broken. I think we need ridiculous reforms that I don't know how we get because our political system is, is broken. You know, no one's going to agree because everybody's pointing the finger at each other as an ideological enemy. So how do you actually get the votes to make some, some change like this happen? Perhaps the state level, state level thing. Maybe mm-hmm. uh, you said uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders is now the governor. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can put some pressure on her and get you the DNA tests you want and say like, let's make the first step towards real justice and fixing these systems. I don't know, man. I don't either. There's, I mean, we've been f- working on this for three decades and there's no easy solution. Well, what's your what, what's what's your plan outside of that? I mean, what are you working on? Oh, a whole bunch of stuff. Um, you know, I I basically what I do is write. I've written eight books since I've been out, uh, and a great deal of it is about you know, like we were talking about earlier, the spiritual practices, the things I focus on that that changed my life, allowed me to survive in prison. Uh, I I help people with that. You know write about that, talk about that. One of the things that I'm really, really passionate about right now, uh, strangely enough, is boxing, because it's one of the things that I've discovered that helps me with like all of the mental stuff. You know, when, when people think about boxing, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like when, when people think of that, they just, they just see it as like two people brutalizing each other. They don't, they don't realize like it forces you to form like all these new neural pathways. You know, you have to like recognize all of these different combinations and, and you have to have like, you know, split second reaction times and things like that. So that's one of the things I've become really excited about because due to all the things we're talking about, like the prison beatings, eating garbage for 18 years, the psychological and emotional torture. I mean, it destroyed me in a lot of ways. It destroyed me physically, mentally. And that's one of the things that's kind of helping stitch me back together, you know, helping me to form these neural pathways, helping me regain physical health. So I'd I'd spend, uh, Lori and I both spend a lot of time doing that. Um, And honestly, I, I don't put a lot of thought into the future. I think that's one of the things that also probably contributes to happiness. I think if you put too much time thinking about the future and trying to plan for things that you don't have any control over, you're going to be very, very anxious. Yeah. So the only thing I do is put one foot in front of the other 
And after all this time, I have the belief and expectation that whatever I'm supposed to do next will come next. I like that. I think here's a message for everybody listening. If you're in a dark place, if you're anxious or depressed, just think about one good thing you have right now and enjoy it for right now. You know, just take take the time to recognize that because I feel for a lot of people, you know, I mentioned earlier that a young person might be born with a silver spoon. And then as they get older and become an adult, become more responsible for their own income and everything, they start going down in their access. They get upset. They start feeling, oh no, I'm losing things. And it's like, just take time to recognize what you have, mm-hmm. you know, take stock of that and, and, and center yourself. Because I think that also plays a role in what you were saying earlier about it's not being done to you, it's being done for you. So maybe if you're in some dark place, or maybe even if you're in the happiest place you've ever been, if you're the happiest you've ever been, stop, take a moment, pause, recognize you know, I got these good things. How about that? Mm-hmm. And uh, and let the future be the future. I think you got you got to balance worrying about the future and planning for it, but also enjoying yes. what you have. Yep. Find something you love and lose yourself in it. Yeah. Yeah. If you if you only ever worry about the future, I mean, what's it all for? You know, at some point you got to stop and say, hey, you know, I got to this 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 point. I'm at this point. What can I do right now for myself? That's that's gonna make me feel good. Otherwise, just always, you're never in the moment. Mm-hmm. You know? At the same time, I'd say avoid short-term gains that bring long-term losses. Yes. Find that, find that yes. balance. One of the things also I think that really kind of helps me is, you know, we live in New Orleans and, and the entire culture of New Orleans is about enjoying your life. I mean, that's what life there is built on. And it could be in a bunch of different ways. It could be through, you know, enjoying the music or, you know, people who come there to get obliterated or whatever, which I don't necessarily <laughs> recommend. But every every aspect of life there, and it's one of the reasons I love it so much is because all of the turmoil that's going on in the world doesn't saturate there as much because people are there because they want to enjoy their lives. You know, it's funny. Uh, it is the Fat Tuesday celebration, you know, Mardi Gras. We don't really do that anywhere else. I, I, that was always funny because I, I did not know. I knew what Mardi Gras was. I knew it was this big festival, this big party, but I didn't know that it meant Fat Tuesday. Mm-hmm. And then uh, it was only later because they have these buns in Sweden called semla that they, they eat on Fat Tuesday. It's a cardamom bun with whipped cream or whatever. And then someone mentioned, yeah, it's Fat Tuesday. That's why we do it. And I was like, oh, Fat Tuesday. Like, yeah. And then someone mentioned, like, that's what Mardi Gras is. And I was like, is that what they're doing? It's like you party and you eat and dance. I'm like, oh, now I get it. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I've yeah. never been though. That sounds pretty fun. It's 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 one of those things that it's kind of mind boggling. Like people know about Mardi Gras, but they don't know like how massive and all pervasive it is in New Orleans. Like like it it encompasses and saturates everything, like everything. People can't imagine the size of like the parades and, you know, the magnitude of this stuff down there. And when you're down there, like it's it's like completely mind-blowing when you're seeing this stuff and you're realizing to the rest of the world, it's just Tuesday. Yeah. Like When, they when is it? Did it happen already or not? Yeah, it was just, uh, when was it? Like last week or week before last? Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. I got to I gotta go check that out. I've mm-hmm. never, never, been, never been there. And most people think it's like one day too, but it actually starts on January the 6th, like the oh, 12th wow. day of Christmas. So it goes all the way up from January 6th to Mardi Gras day. So you're talking about a period of roughly two months of nonstop <laughs> celebration and partying. Wow. That sounds pretty cool. I should definitely check that out. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, so what made you choose uh, New Orleans then? That very thing. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah. Well, well, Let's go it's party, like, man. Well, not even partying. It was just like the rest of the world. We lived in New York, you know, for almost the whole, for, for the first 10 years that I was out. Oh, okay. But something happened there, like during the lockdowns or whatever. It's like the the energy of the place changed. It is not the same place anymore. It it, it just felt like all of the joy and everything else had been sucked out of it. And everybody's walking around, you know, angry and frowned up or whatever it was. And we just started to look across the world looking for a place where life was more normal, where it was more like what it was pre-pandemic when when people were focused on things other than like politics or whatever the latest thing is or whatever it was and that's what new orleans is it's like the, it, it almost feels like the rest of the world does not saturate in there it is a world unto itself what do you think you'd be doing if this never happened that's a very very i would say very hard question but it, it's actually an impossible question you know, just because I have no idea whatsoever. I, you know, the same, they considered us throwaway. I yeah. was a kid with no prospects. You know, everybody in my family, I don't believe anyone has ever lived over the age of like 65. And, and by that point, they had already had multiple heart attacks, limbs cut off, whatever it is. Nobody ever escaped like a life of poverty. You know, if we saw things on TV, like people going to college or whatever, that wasn't reality. Yeah. You know, that was as real to us as fairy tales. I would like to think that I would have found a way out of that world, but you know the reality of it is, is I have no idea. I wonder if you'd just be another uh, middle-aged dude working at the local hardware store or something, and yep. not another thought in the world. Yep. I mean, you came across very bright, even when you were a teenager. Though you watched some of those documentaries, and you're well-spoken. It, it didn't seem like you fit there anyway. Like even back then. Um, but I mean, that could have been what you were going through. I don't know. It just didn't seem like you seemed kind of like different than everybody else there. I don't well, know how else to put it. In in some ways, it was like I never cared about the world, to be honest. You know, I never went through those things that people go through where they think, you know, I want to be a doctor or I want to be a cop or or whatever it is like I never thought about things like having a career or having a family or any of that sort of stuff. It wasn't something that I focused on. And, and I don't know. I don't know what my point to that even is other than just that I didn't fit in. For, for me, like I was always doing things like I dropped out of school when I was in ninth grade, never even went to high school. But I had even honestly quit caring a couple of years before that. I don't think I learned anything from school other than how to read and write. Once I could read and write, I pretty much educated myself from that point on. I used to skip school and go spend all day at the library just reading. Wow. I ask because I'm. I wonder if, you know, again to go back to the it's not being done to you, it's being done for you. I wonder if after all of this, you are now more powerful in terms of a positive influence to help the world than you would have been otherwise. And I'm not trying to. I mean, maybe it sounds disrespectful or something. I'm not trying to make it seem like, you know, it was better it happened. But, you know, maybe maybe if this didn't happen, you'd just be a local guy living your life and you know. I mean, but maybe now you can save some people and make the world a better place. Well, when I look back at it, I see this as 
100%. Like I said, I wouldn't have necessarily wanted to go through this, but when I look back and see what it has done to me and what it has given to me, I consider this entire situation to be 100% a blessing in my life. Wow. You know, I would have never met Lori otherwise. I wouldn't live where I did do. I wouldn't have the life that I have. I wouldn't be here sitting here talking to y'all right now. Like this situation, yes, it took from me tremendously, but it's like that scripture that says, I'll give you beauty for ashes. It doesn't say there won't be ashes. It yeah. says you will get ashes, but I will give you beauty for those ashes. And what happened to me is I was given beauty for those ashes and more beauty than than I had ashes. Man, it's like forged through fire and now a powerful tool for something good. Hopefully you guys get the DNA test though. I think that'll be a huge milestone. In, from your in, mouth in, to God's in, ear. In the legacy. And from that point on, I even think right now, you know, you know, I'm just some dude who heard your story I've had, you know, Cassandra and Taylor, of course, being like, you've got to, you've got to talk to this guy. And even where we are right now, you have everything you're saying, I think is so important for people to hear. For one, prison reform is so important. The positivity um, that, that Joel Osteen thing re from, from, from his sermon on TV to you, to everyone watching now, it's not being done to, it's being done for you. I know it's not so simple. Some people might still, you know, be upset in their circumstances and they, they have every right to be. But I just think that uh, forged through fire and now more powerful and, and more beneficial to humanity as a whole, maybe that is, is, it can be looked at as one way as although it was a dark moment in your life or for any person to go through, it may have made you into an instrument of something more powerful and good for, for humans as a whole, you mm. know? Hopefully. I mean, I, I, don't... I certainly think so at the very least. I mean, I wouldn't obviously wish what happened to you on anybody, but I can see if, if the message is going to save people or help people, then there is something good coming from all of it. But even then, you know, honestly, like if if it were just up to me and and I didn't have to keep pursuing this DNA testing and all this, like I probably would have just, you know, like like I said, talking about this stuff, it's it's not really a pleasant thing for me. You know, like like having like I don't think about this stuff on a daily basis. You know, it's not like I spend a great deal of time thinking about the time that I was in prison or thinking about what the cops did to me or like the, the prosecutor, the attorney general, the judge, all that. I don't think about that stuff, honestly. So going back and revisiting this stuff, it's not necessarily a pleasant thing for me. And I wouldn't be doing it if not for like still needing to get this testing done, still wanting to get this testing done. So I see even now how it's like this this need for this keeps pushing me forward. And like you said, hopefully something will happen. Maybe they'll pass some sort of new legislation saying if a person is asking for DNA testing to be done and they're willing to pay for it, then there should be legislation in place saying, okay, well, there's no reason not to do it then. Hopefully it will lead to helping other people. But if it were just, you know, if, if it wasn't for all that, I would just probably f fade away and, and try to enjoy my life to the best of my ability. Our, um are Jesse and Jason also asking for the DNA testing, or are they just like not caring and I, out of it? You know, it's it's like Jesse, for example, only had an IQ of seventy to seventy-two right. to begin with, so he he went back to the exact same trailer park that he came from before we were arrested. And the last I heard was he was taking care of his father, who had like Alzheimer's, like they're living together in a trailer somewhere in the middle of nowhere. So you're not really talking about somebody that's, you know, mentally or emotionally or any other way equipped to go into a, you know, a fight like this. Right. Um, Jason, he's doing his own thing. He, he works for an organization with some other people that that's what they do full time is like, is look at other, uh, 
proclaim innocence, proclaim innocence yeah. or proclaim justice or something like that. Yeah. I mean, it's not like we're, you know, all in contact with each other or any of that. Um, you know, it's like who who really stays in contact with people they knew when they were 16 years old? Yeah. Yeah. I might message someone once a year, Merry Christmas. Yeah. And only like three people. Yeah. Good uh, friends. Other than uh, Lori, obviously, have you stayed close to anybody else that you met who you know, were part of the Free the West Memphis 3 campaign or anything like that? Like, did uh, you make any friends from it, I guess? It's hard to say. I, I'm maybe, and I might be forgetting it right now. Um, but I would say the main one is probably the last attorney that I had. You know, keep in mind, this is another thing people don't understand. Like, everybody thinks that the entire problem with my case was the state, the prosecutor, the attorney general, all of these people, and it wasn't. Right. We hired and fired a dozen attorneys in the time that I was in prison. Some of them did things like at one point I had six months left to live before they were going to execute me. I had to have my appeal filed. Lori had to go out and raise $200,000 to to give this attorney a retainer fee to get him to work on the case. He took that money and disappeared. Wow. Took every penny we had when I had six months left to live. We had to start all over again from scratch. So it's not just like a one side issue. Like it's, it's definitely in the defense too. Like there is deep, deep corruption there just as much as there is in the other side. But towards the end, we were fortunate enough to meet an attorney who actually did have a heart and a soul and like really dedicated himself to, to bringing about justice in this case. And we're still, you know, we still talk to him probably weekly, but honestly, there's not a lot of people from back then that I'd, stay in contact with. And for one reason, you know, for another reason, it's like I was saying a while ago, I'm not the same person anymore. I'm not the person that they knew. Yeah. Do you ever have issues with people like Googling you and then just assuming that you're guilty or do they see the good stuff first? Or have you had any issues with like, I don't know, a published or well, I guess a publisher wouldn't be a good example, but you know, somebody that you meet in town, like your local deli guy or a bartender or whatever. Nah, you know, you usually have like the, the weirdos online, you know. That, Think you're a lizard. Exactly. Yeah. You know, stuff like that. Uh, people who would attack you, like not to your face or whatever, but just online. But in real life, no. The only thing I can think of that comes close to that is, for example, when West of Memphis, another one of the documentaries about the case came out and we were going to have to promote it, I needed to get into Canada to go to a screening to promote it. And Canada was like, no, you're not coming in. You have three counts of capital murder on your record, wow. so you're not coming into Canada. Yeah. So then it's like it doesn't matter that, you know, what the situation is or anything else. Yeah. Have you been able to travel outside the United States? Yeah, a lot of countries uh, don't really care. Uh, Iceland, Sweden, you know, places like that wow. uh, that are pretty Iceland's open. awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Iceland yeah, and Sweden, both, both of them were, uh, France, you know, most of these countries have been, you know, like just, just welcomed us with open arms and embraced us because they understand the story and That's everything cool. else. When, when, yeah. when you traveled there, did you have to warn them in advance or something or file paperwork or just show up? To be honest, I can't remember. Well, I have no idea. I've traveled a lot for work <laughs> and Depending I on the size Lori of the country. <laughs> Lori's usually the one that has to do it. So she would, yeah. 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 Yeah, some, sometimes I've, I've been to places that are so small, there's there's no way you're getting through without them knowing exactly who you are, what you're doing. And then, you know, I haven't really had any problems in that regard. I don't think I've ever been denied entry to anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What's next? 
I mean, the, the, the big thing you're pushing for, and I suppose uh, that I, I agree with should happen, is the DNA testing. So undoing the knots and pulling the DNA from inside. So right now we file, when, when is our filing due? March. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the state filed a motion to dismiss. Do you want to this, take up my chair for a little bit? Yeah, if you want to come and talk on, okay. just because uh, I don't think anyone will hear, but you said the state filed a motion to dismiss. To dismiss everything, of course. To dismiss everything, of course. So then we have gone back, filed a really good brief. The lawyer, Steve Braga, Damien is talking about, filed a motion, a great motion. We're waiting to hear if the state is going to allow the dismissal or go on with the testing. So that's where we are. So waiting to, to see if they'll, they'll, they'll take a dismissal or go on with, the t with testing, mm -hmm. just for those, because I, I don't think anyone would be able to be able to hear what you were saying. But So if people wanted to help, if they like hear this and they're like, man, get that DNA testing, who should they be tweeting at or emailing or writing to to you know express support or what can they do? I would say the governor, the attorney general of Governor and Attorney General of Arkansas, just trying to relate. So Sarah Huckabee Sanders again. Sarah Huckabee yeah. Sanders. And I'm sure we have people. Yeah, I can make a few call phone yeah. calls and be like, can someone get me, can we, can we move this forward? This would be amazing. That would be, that would be great. And there's a new prosecutor. Her last name is Fonticella. Sonia Fonticella. Sonia Fonticella, a new yeah. prosecutor. And she's, she may be willing to be helpful. She may be willing to be helpful. That would be great. Do you guys have like a, a fundraiser or a crowdfund for? Not yet. We're waiting for them to actually uh, say, okay, you can do the testing because we don't want to accept money or anything from anyone if that's not in place where we know it's going to happen. So once we do have that in place, then we'll announce it and people can give to it, donate to it if they want to. And if people wanted to support you, you do have your Patreon still, right? And exactly. your, all your books are on Amazon. Yes. Um, so there is those things too. What's, what's your Patreon? Uh, it's just my name, just, uh, you know, Damien Eccles. But what I do on there, once again, it ties back into ceremonial magic, the things that I was doing that, you know, allowed me to survive when I was in prison. Uh, you know, what it, what it really is, I don't know how much of the stuff you even care about or are interested in or anything, but, but essentially like what ceremonial magic is, you know, most people hear those, those words, hear that phrase, and they think, you know, they have all kinds of preconceived ideas and connotations, and they think it's just another weird-ass religion or whatever it is. And actually what it is is a, a system that allows you to have direct experience of things as opposed to believing or have faith. So say, for example, like in religion, you know, most of the time in religion you hear this phrase, God created the world, and you, the way it's said and the way it's looked at or understood is almost like you have an artist creating an art piece, like a painter creating a painting or a sculptor creating a sculpture, and at the end of that process, the artist is here and the piece they've created is there, and they're two separate things. And that's the way they look at this phrase, God created the world. What it's looked at more in ceremonial magic is the word God. First off, it would be shorthand for generate, order, and destroy, which are the three principles that the source of creation does. It generates form, puts them in an order to achieve maximum evolution, and then once it's done that, it destroys them in order to start over with, with new forms. So when we say that God created the world in ceremonial magic, what we're, what we're saying is that you have this infinite source of intelligence and energy that lies outside the boundaries of time and space. Because the only way anything is infinite, eternal, unchanging is if it does not exist within time and space. So when we say God created the world, what we're saying is this infinite source of intelligence and energy pours itself into the dimensions of time and space and became us, became the world. 
So we are literally God incarnate, just like Jesus was, but we don't experience reality that way. We experience reality as if we're all these distinct individuals. I'm separate yeah. from you, and we're all separate from anything else. Part of the I dig it. Part of the point of doing the ritual work consistently of magic it, it, is that it allows you to, over time, uh, experience the reality behind your persona of, of like what you truly are, like this divine energy instead of what you think you are, which is this individual. All right, then one last question. Have you ever tried DMT? I have not, but I've heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I'm like, it's the cliche you Joe Rogan podcast. Rogan? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, after everything you're saying and like so much of this actually overlaps with a lot of conversations I've had with people about DMT and stuff. I'm like, all right, we're throwing it out there, but um other than that damien thanks for hanging out it's uh, been a blast thank you so much for having me absolutely and thank Man. you for helping to get the word about about this to a you know a whole new audience of people and and you know keeping it in the public eye because like i said that's the only reason they didn't kill me yeah i mean obviously that's a huge issue for us we're very liberty-minded individuals here the, the idea that the state would kill an innocent person is horrifying and if you're saying look we can get more evidence and put this to rest it should happen we should we should we should okay let's do it there should be no, there's no argument from anybody. What's, 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 what's the big deal? If, if they really think you did it and you're saying, well, here's some more evidence. Why don't you get it? Then let's, let's do it. Let's get it. Exactly. So, thanks for hanging out. Thank you and for having Cassandra, me. Cassandra, thanks for, for assisting. I know you've been following this forever. So. Yeah, yes. thank you so much for coming. It's thank an honor. You, thank you. Thank you for defending yeah. us through the years <laughs> and for spreading the word about the case and everything else. It yeah, is greatly no appreciated. I'm a, I'm, I love your books. I think everybody should read them. I, I'm thank very you. happy that you're here. Thank you. Right on. Well, this has been a blast. So thank you all for, for being here and for everybody who's listening. We do the show every Friday at 1 p.m. So we'll have clips up throughout the week. Thanks so much for supporting us. Go to TimCast.com, become a member. We will we'll eventually have a members-only component for these shows as well, but we're just getting the ball rolling. So uh, thanks to everybody who listened and thanks to uh, you guys for coming. And we'll see you all next time.